Ladies and gentlemen, the U.S. and world economy has been on the top of everybody's mind for at least the last two years. We've seen sky-high inflation. We've seen fuel prices flying through the roof. We've seen IRAs and stocks going this way. Precious metals going this way. Crypto going this way. Housing market this way. So we brought in an expert on the economy. We brought in one of the top wealth strategists in the country. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rob Luna to the show. He's going to tell us everything about what's going on, where we can put our money, how we can keep our money safe. And believe it or not, it's not all doom and gloom. There's actually some hope. So everybody, enjoy the show. And if you can, head over to iTunes and Spotify, leave us a review, let us know what you think of this episode. And if you would like, we've got a pretty damn good newsletter coming out about twice a month. Tells you what's going on with Vigilance Elite, the Sean Ryan Show, when the guests are coming on, all kinds of good stuff. So go down in the description, click the link, sign up for the email newsletter. All right, love you all. I hope you have a great Christmas. Tis the season. Cheers. As the U.S. economy experiences sky-high inflation and a looming threat of a recession, Americans are increasingly protecting their savings with precious metals. This is why I'm so excited to partner with Bullion Max, a company that makes it easy and affordable for people to buy gold and silver online. In this Christmas season, Bullion Max has the best way to share with your friends and family the sense of security that comes with precious metals ownership. A Patriot Santa Silver Round. Containing one ounce of silver, the Patriot Santa features jolly old Saint Nick standing proud with old glory, the American flag. While the dollar is rapidly losing value, this silver round will act as a reminder of the true value of physical precious metals. Get one for everyone in your family, use it for a secret Santa gift, or buy it for yourself. Get the Patriot Santa silver round now at bullionmax.com SRS. But act quickly, supplies are limited. Go to bullionmax.com SRS now. Rob Luna. Sean. Welcome to the show, man. Excited to be here, man. Great day to be here, too. Thanks for making the trip. So, what, like a month ago, almost to the day, we're sharing a bus <laughs> to pause up in Montana, not saying a word to each other, just the, the little head nod. <laughs> the courtesy head nod, yeah. Spent about a week out there and uh, never saying hi. And... Sure should. Now you're sitting here right in front of me <laughs> on the show. Life works in uh, mysterious ways, but I think like we both said, if we knew how much we had in common, uh, we both had our wives with us on that trip, just a uh, husband and wife trip. Uh, it, it probably would have been a bad thing. I don't think our wives would have liked that much. So it, it, it's a good thing we found out about how much we had in common after that trip, I think. Yeah. Small world, small world. It is. I, we did. We had that photographer. I checked his. I saw him post your guys. Is that what stuff. it was? Yeah. <laughs> we took his class. Yeah. And I was like, "Who is this guy? He looks familiar." And 
and then I'm like, oh shit, he's one of the top wealth strategists <laughs> in the country, and he's on Fox Business and everything else, and so and you weren't too shabby yourself, so yeah. So <laughs> Thank you. So I, yeah, and, and quite honestly, Sean, I'm, I am. Uh, you know, a little bit intimidated by all the accomplishments you've had in your life and how successful this show has been. And uh, I want to make sure I don't screw it up for you, but yeah, super excited to be here and hopefully I can give the audience a lot of value today. Well, I really, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Just, just for the record, I'm nervous too. I always get intimidated <laughs> talking about things that I know nothing about in the economy inflation. That's not my strong well, suit. We'll get through it together. But, um, but just a brief introduction. So, Man, looking India, I, I honestly I thought we were just going to talk about the economy and, and inflation <laughs> and investing and all that kind of stuff. And then I started researching in, and you grew up grew up on the streets of L.A. Yeah. Sounds like you had a really rough childhood. Yeah, had a very entrepreneurial type mind at a very young age uh, to survive. Took a job as a stock as a stockbroker trainee. That eventually what led you to Wharton Business School. Now you're a top-ranked wealth strategist, CEO of SureVest. You're on CS, CNBC, Fox Business, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Forbes, you name it. You're on it, so you're definitely overqualified. <laughs> and and um, and I can't wait to dive into all this stuff. So kind of where I'd like to start is is your childhood. Yeah. But um, but real real quick. Everybody gets a gift. <laughs> I, I heard about these gummy bears. That's the one thing when I, when I found you. I, I started here and I said, I hope by the time I get there, he's not out of gummy bears. So I'm, I'm going to have you sign this, though. I don't think I'm going to eat this. <laughs> oh, right I'm on. Put this up on my shelf. So those are legal in all fifty yeah. states. So <laughs> good. You good. can take them back to California with it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I thought bears might be kind of fitting for this bear market. That perfect. We're in, yeah. Yeah. Right? Exactly. It's been pretty Did rough. <laughs> but <clears throat> so I like to start. Every show off with a question from uh, my Patreon. Yeah, we have a uh, the Vigilance Elite Sean Ryan Show community over there. I give them insight on who's coming on the show. Told them you were coming on, and I had a slew of questions. So if we do have time, I'd like to get like a second exclusive interview with you. Sure, uh, yeah. just yeah. for Patreon. But sure, this is from Justin Perry, and I actually have the same question. Okay. What percentage of total investments should be distributed amongst <clears throat> hard assets like land, gold, silver, precious metals, and how much in stocks and cryptos? He goes on to say that he's scared to basically invest in non-tangible assets because he can't hold them. He doesn't trust them. Mm -hmm. I'm with him yeah, on that. Yeah. I get intimidated by that. I, I feel like the stock market is manipulated. Mm -hmm. I'm even starting to see that. I, um, I don't know if you know about this, but there was a precious metals thing going on with nickel, and I think it was in England. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard they, something about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it's a question that a, a lot of people have, and uh, I, I don't want to you know shortcut it or dismiss it, but you know the the truth is everybody's situation is different. Um, you know, when you think about hard assets, for example, um, raw land. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with raw land is it's not liquid. It doesn't produce any income. <laughs> Over time, it, you know, it does obviously have value and it's good you can be able to hold on to it. But if you get into a situation where you have a 2008, 2009 or a situation even like we're heading today and maybe a potential recession going into next year, 
it, it's, it's pretty tough to get rid of it. You're not getting paid to have it. And so if all of your assets are tied up in something that's illiquid, that's, that's a little bit of a challenge. Um, where if you have, let's say when you talk about real estate, multifamily apartment complexes, for example, that's something you got people paying your rent every single month. You're gonna have that cash flow. More than likely, that's not gonna drop down as much as something like raw land. But I think what you have to figure out first when you invest is, what are you trying to accomplish? How much of that needs to cash flow to be able to pay your bills? How much are you just banking and you're sending away for five to 10 years? So, you know, when people came into my wealth management firm, there's everyone's so used to me giving them the prescription, here's what you need to do, where I, I really have no idea what to recommend until I understand what people are trying to do. So, you know, what I would say is first figure out where are you in your life? So if you're someone who's just retiring, I would first secure cash flow through things like bonds, high quality dividend paying companies like your Johnson & Johnson's and Coca-Cola's, uh, maybe some multifamily real estate, really safe, secure stuff that you can get a check from every month. And then once you've got that paid, then, then you can see, okay, well, what's left? So let's just say I've got a million bucks and I've got 500 I need to distribute towards these cash flow assets, right? Now I got my bills paid for, I feel secure then you could start to take some risk with the rest of it. So if you wanna speculate on some raw land, if you wanna buy some cryptocurrency, if you wanna have things like gold, if you want some more speculative stocks, that's what I always tell people to do. So I know everyone wants, oh, put 20% in crypto, 20% in gold. But remember, we're investing because we're trying to either obtain a lifestyle that we don't yet have, and we're trying to invest for that, or we're trying to use our investments to secure our future, or to secure our current um, lifestyle. So that, you know, that, that, and I don't think people, most people think about that. It's just a, a pot full of things that we think about it more, but more think about what are you trying to accomplish, create an asset basket that's going to first secure your lifestyle. Then you can be a little bit more speculative on other types of assets. What, what, what is your favorite type of investment? Yeah, I personally like private equity companies. I like companies that I know we're going somewhere that I can get in there. You know, a lot of people like real estate because they can get in there, maybe fix something up, add value. I don't know how to even, you know, hang a picture, let alone get in there and fix real estate. So I think it goes down to what can you add value to. So I think a lot of people can buy distressed properties, fix them up cheaper than a contractor could, sell them. For me, it's companies. I can go and identify companies that maybe don't have good management. Maybe they're not using the right systems. I could add value to them. And I like businesses because business is cash flow. If you've got a good product, so if your Coca-Cola is always going to sell Coca-Cola products, General, General, uh, I'm sorry, Procter and Gamble is always going to sell uh, toothpaste. They're always going to sell uh, paper towels, no matter what the economy is. And they're able, as we've seen, with an inflationary environment, they've done one or two things: they've raised prices or they've shrunk packages. Either one of them, they've been able to keep up with inflation. Really, about 150 percent of the rise of inflation. So. It's a misnomer that stocks don't keep up inflation with inflation. They're actually one of the best assets to do that. But you know, the problem with stocks, Sean, is people treat it like a casino. They treat it like gambling. And if you do it that way, it could be very speculative. But stocks over the long run have been the single greatest asset to invest in. There's been a lot of wealth created. And if you do it the right way, I think everybody should have a good percentage of their portfolio in the stock market. Interesting. You brought up uh, people tr treating the stock market like a casino, yeah. and that actually sparks a question for me. So you see all these people like me who yeah. don't know what the hell they're doing, yeah, yeah. and they're on these things like Robinhood, yeah, Cash yeah, App, yeah. 
Yeah. I'm not on there, but but <laughs> you see a lot of them, yeah. and it seems like it's like these mafias yeah. of of novice investors yeah. just throwing money at whatever Reddit tells them to throw money. Yeah, right. What is that like? Is that does that make your job more difficult when mm-hmm. that amount of people are engaging in the markets like that? Well, you know, Sean, I, I mean, I actually welcome it um, because I think what Reddit's done, um, what you're seeing with things like. Um, AMC, and they call it the eight movement, all this, it's it's actually creating awareness for the stock market investing that maybe wasn't there before. You know, I, I think the information that's been out there prior to that is a bunch of talking heads talking over people. People don't really understand what's going on. And I think at the end of the day, people think that there's these guys on Wall Street that's so much smarter than the average person. And that's really not true. I think the average person, if they spend a little bit of time educating themselves, can just do just as good a job as anybody else out there. So I don't want to call that the dumb money like other people do. What, what I would caution, though, is um, you know using chat boards, <laughs> talking to your neighbor, um, that's not a substitute for educating yourself. Um, so I, I think it's good in a sense, uh, as long as you're not shortcutting things. Like even like politics, why do politicians put out 20, 30 second ads? Because they know that's how people make decisions. <laughs> but you really should be looking at the issues. It's the same thing with investing. Yeah, maybe you, should, you can get an idea from Reddit, but do you have the fundamental knowledge to then go back there and do the research to your own to decide whether or not it's good for you? So I, I think it's good in a sense, but I also want to caution people out there that it's, it takes a little bit more to put together a good stock portfolio than just a tip that you might get off of a chat board. Interesting. I and mean, I thought that would have been a big pain for you guys <laughs> in, in this industry with all those people. But um, <clears throat> anyways, I, let's, let's get into your childhood. That yep. sounds... I'm, I love it when I see people that come from a childhood like that make it big like you have. I think it gives a lot of people that come from a background like that a lot of hope, you know, and uh, and, and it, it's, it proves that hard work and some drive uh, will take you very far in life. Yeah. And so where'd you grow up? Yeah. Um, you know, it's the funny part talking about this is, and we were just talking about this before we you know, started the show, is this is a, a part of my life for the vast majority of my career up until you know, just a, about a year or two ago that I, I really didn't let anybody know. <laughs> uh, because you know, I, I spent most of my career working with ultra high net worth people. A lot of them, like I was telling you, the average 65 year old white person, a lot of them with Ivy League backgrounds. And uh, where I grew up was probably the last marketing effort <laughs> that I wanted to use, and everyone probably would have ran the way the other way if they knew the true story of that. So you know, now I've had a, a decent amount of success to where um, you know what I what I've found just kind of by mistake is by telling the story, it's inspired and motivated other people. So I'm kind of happy to share it. You know, I, I grew up well. I was born in, in New Jersey originally, um, but moved out to Southern California. When I was, uh, you know, very young, uh, I grew up at, at initially with a single mother. My dad kind of left at a, a very early age. Um, you know, the challenge was my uh, mother was a drug addict. Uh, she was an alcoholic, and uh, kind of in and out of rehab. And I, I had this period of time. We moved back to. We were in New Jersey before. I should back up before we moved uh, to California. Um, where I spent about three years living with my grandfather uh, in a town called Westfield, New Jersey, which ironically is on, I think, a Hulu show right now. They're doing some show about it. It's uh, blown up a little town called Westfield, New Jersey. And it was kind of uh, 
you know, American dream type of town. My, my, I'm Cuban and Italian. My grandfather immigrated through Ellis Island. Uh, he was a masonry, and he actually uh, started with his brother a gravestone business, making gravestones, kind of an unusual business, but bought a house uh, in the 1940s and my uh, able to give my uh, uncles, my mom, a pretty good upbringing. Um, but it didn't really work out uh, too good for her. The reason I bring that up is I spent three years living with him when my mom was kind of in and out of rehab or just kind of disappearing. And from age six to nine, I, I still remember that. I really consider that my childhood, and that was kind of a really good point in time. But my grandfather died when I was nine. Uh, the house got sold, and you know, brothers and sisters split up assets. And so uh, my mom then moved us out to Southern California. She had a boyfriend out there at the time. And, um, you know, as I said, you know, hooked on drugs. What kind uh, of drugs do you know? Cocaine, primarily. Uh, eventually got into heroin, uh, vodka bottles <laughs> all over the place at all time. You know, very, very abusive in pretty much every different way that you can imagine. Different guys in and out uh, of the house. Um, uh, yeah, we, we lived in, a, uh, in an area in Southern California um, during that time where uh, 80s and 90s, you know, heavy gang violence. Uh, it, it really doesn't, isn't going on here now, but just some of the stupidest shit you could imagine. You know, neighborhood by neighborhood, like just to put it in perspective here, like, uh, you know, within two to three miles of a boarding neighborhood, because you were born in that neighborhood, there was these gang territories where there was drive-by shootings uh, going on every day. Um, you know, people were being killed. I, you know, I, I remember just about you know, every two to three weeks hearing about either someone I went to school with or a friend being shot due to just senseless Damn. gang violence. Um, I had a half-brother who was out there at the time who was involved with gangs, um, wound up you know, being incarcerated for life in prison for you know, triple homicide during that period of time. Triple <laughs> um, homicide? Yeah, triple homicide. How and, old? Uh, he was 22 at the time, uh, nine, 10 years older than me. Wow. Um, and, you know, it was really at that point in time, the Mexican mafia that was controlling the gangs, uh, primarily from inside the prison <laughs> during that time. And, and to the best of my knowledge, what happened was uh, in the late 90s, that all kind of stopped because they started to realize there was huge cracks that crackdowns and people that looked like, you know, looked like gang members, graffiti, all that stuff kind of stopped. And they realized, like, hey, this isn't good for business. And the whole neighborhood gang stuff went away. But it wasn't before... You know, a lot of people were killed. You know, I remember dodging bullets, uh, getting the back window of a car shot out. And, and not necessarily because you're a gang member, but because you lived in that neighborhood. That was really the kind of shit that was going on during that time. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was a tough time. And I, I didn't, you know, Sean, I think I was telling you, I didn't realize it was a tough upbringing until I was a dad myself. <laughs> and you kind of look back, you're like, holy shit. Like, you know, and, I, and people ask, well, were you poor? I'm like, yeah, we were poor in a sense that my mom was like so strung out on drugs sometimes that she didn't even remember from month to month to file for food stamps or whatever it is you needed oh, to do. So, I, you know, I remember, and I think one of the toughest things, like as a kid looking in the refrigerator, no food there. And, uh, you know, I was just telling my wife this story the other day. I used to, we'd go to McDonald's or Arby's and we'd we'd get barbecue sauce, ketchup packets, and we'd eat those. Like, And, and I didn't think of anything, but it was... Yeah, you know, it was a it was a pretty tough time, but um, you know, at, in the same sense, I think everybody has a, a path in life, right? And so, um, 
you know, you learn how to be resourceful when, when there's no food uh, in the refrigerator. And so I became a people person at a pretty early age. I would, uh, you know, get in really good with my friends and their parents, uh, get invited over to, uh, to dinner to eat. And um, uh, I learned how to become an entrepreneur at an early age. I mean, one of the first things I started doing, I, I would see when a friend would get a new bike, he'd have an extra bike. And I'd say, well, hey, what are you going to do with that? Like, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you let me sell it for you and I'll give you a percentage. <laughs> so I started kind of the consignment business with bicycles. How old were you? Uh, I was maybe 11 years old, 12 years old at that time when I first started doing that and uh, started doing okay with that. Um, obviously, the jobs like you know washing people's cars, cutting lawns. Uh, I, there was this there was this thing called the student work program in LA, which is a total scam. I think this guy would pick us up uh, after school in a van. We'd get a box of candy. We'd sell basically at at the time in the in the late '80s, uh, twelve dollar uh, Snickers bars and ten dollars Reeses, and it was you know supposed to go to some student program. But I think it was the guy in his van who was getting you know eighty percent of it. <laughs> but but you know it was, it was funny, Sean. I was I was telling a friend about this the other day, and people were like, well, "You're you're a great sales." I said, well, I don't really think I sell. I just listen to people and I try to give them what they need. And, you know, I tell the story of, you know, going door to door when I was 13, 14 years old, selling candy that was super expensive. And if you never have sold door to door, <laughs> it's it's probably one of the, you know, telemarketing, which I've done is tough, but going door to door <laughs> and knocking on somebody's door during dinner with a box of candy you're trying to sell them isn't the easiest thing. But, you know, they'd, they'd come out and I'd have my pitch from the student work program and I'd show them a Snickers bar and, well, we don't eat candy, but good thing I had tea in there and I had uh, coloring books, whatever it was. And so, you know, it taught me, I guess, in my some of my first early economic lessons. Uh, how do you price things? How do you sell things? Um, how do you relate and understand with people and value people um, became very important. Um, but, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit, you know, did a, a lot of those things to kind of get through. Um, you know, my mom was kind of in and out of my life. I, I slept on, I don't know, more couches than I could remember. I spent the last year and a half uh, of high school living with my girlfriend's parents. So yeah, it was a pretty, um, a pretty shitty life, I would say, being a dad now and looking back and obviously like you are realizing, well, shit, I would never want my kids to go through it. But you know, I don't, I don't regret any of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I got involved with sports, um, during that period of time. And it was really, I think that, that provided me an opportunity, um, to get out of this situation because I think if I wouldn't have gotten out of, um, LA when I did to go to college when I was 18, I'd, I'd either be in jail, dead, um, or, or I don't really know, what would be happening. You know, one, one story I, I never told, and this is kind of what was the catalyst um, for me to get out of Southern California. When I was 17 years old, we were at a high school football game and, uh, you know, kind of a big fight broke out after that, rival gang members and everything that I was kind of caught up in the middle of. And uh, somebody there next to me, we were, everyone was kind of fighting. It was like 50 people fist fighting at the same time. One of the guys who we were fighting with, somebody else who I knew from the neighborhood, an older guy, uh, came and stabbed this kid like three times in Damn. front of me. Yeah. And I was like, shit. Like, <laughs> first time I saw, you know, I'd seen these things, but right next to me. And uh, 
you know, everyone kind of ran at that time. We took off, and uh, about maybe 20 minutes later, police, LAPD came, 10 cop cars, chopper, and everything. And about 20 of us in front of a house got pulled over to the side. They took all of us in. I was 17 years old. Um, they took all of us in to kind of the holding tank and started questioning us one by one over about a five or six hour period of time. And at the end, it was um, myself and one of my friends left. Everyone else had been released. <laughs> and I said, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> when, when are we going on? I'm like, you're not going home. And they took us to juvenile hall. This is when I was 17 years old. This is in San Bernardino, California. And uh, put us into, I'm like, what are we, what are, what's going on? Well, we'll let you know. They put us into a holding tank, woke up in the morning, they pulled us in, put a red band on my wrist. I'd never been in juvenile hall, never been arrested before. And they said, you're going to go to Unit 8 because you're being charged with attempted murder. I said, wow. <laughs> uh, attempt, and uh, kind of fast forward the story a little bit. The short of it was, they were questioning, this kid had come by, um, identified, he didn't know exactly who it was, but he thought it was my friend or I who stabbed him. And he probably didn't know exactly who it was because what was going on. And, you know, I, I, I clearly didn't do it. I knew who did it. Um, but kind of the code was at that time, you don't, you don't tell who did it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, this was a 23, 24 year old guy at the time. And he would have been sent, you know, a gang member had been in and out of prison and, um, you don't tell. And, and if you do, your family is going to be killed, you'll be killed. And so it's, you'd rather just go to jail at that time. And so didn't say anything, just said, you know, I didn't know who did it and kind of took the rap and proceeded through the system. And then in about, you know, 60 days, uh, my public defender, they're great. They were able to get it down to, uh, kind of a, a, an assault charge with the misdemeanor and said, hey, you're going to be on probation for a year. Do you want to take it? And I said, yeah, I want to take it. It's better than getting sentenced as a, an adult, which they were thinking of doing. And I would have never obviously been in the career that I'm at. So got released and um, went back, finished my, my last few months of high school. And uh, my wrestling coach said, hey, I've got an opportunity for you to go out to Arizona wrestle. I've got a job set up with you, started a JC and go into Arizona State. And um, he goes, I, I suggest you take it. And I said, I think you're right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I took it. And, uh, you know, kind of the rest of the story is, you know, we, we can get into, but. Uh, well, let's go back real quick. Yeah, yeah. So growing up in an area like that, yeah. I could, and being surrounded in that kind of an environment, I would think it would be really hard to find a positive role model. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you found somebody who was that role model. Yeah, I, I think it was coaches that I had, a few different coaches during the time, my baseball coach, my wrestling coach. And, and you know, that, and a few people have asked me this in terms of, like, who is that one person who really turned you around? Well, I, I think a lot of it was myself. Like, I don't want to take, take away credit, but it's like, yeah, they were there, but there's a lot of other people, and it wasn't like they were sitting me down, you know, an hour or two hours a day. I just I just always thought, Sean, like, I'm better than the situation that I'm in. <laughs> not, not to disrespect her, but I would always look around the room and say, God, like, I'm way smarter than these guys. But I just didn't see a clear path out, but I always kind of felt like that would happen. And I always managed to... You know, that was one situation I got myself in a little little bit of trouble, but I always managed to avoid, like I never stole from anybody, I never hurt anybody, even though I saw that stuff going on, um, I always managed to just be a little bit too late to something <laughs> or not show up. I always kind of keep myself in sports. 
to just barely skirt those types of situations. But there was one thing after that arrest, there was a, a, a police officer actually that came to me, knew me from the neighborhood. And just kind of what I always believed and what I was telling you that I was a little bit, you know, just better than that. And that really wasn't where I belonged. He pulled me aside when I was released and he said, you got to get the F out of here. He goes, you are too good for these guys. You are too smart. And he just said exactly what I told you. And it was the first time in my life that anyone had ever told me that. And, 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 and mind you, you know, I'm, uh, if you look at me, I'm, like I said, I'm Cuban and Italian, but I'm pretty racially ambiguous. No one knows exactly what are you, are you, are you Arab? Are you Mexican? Like no, no one really knows. So I growing up in a Hispanic neighborhood during that period of time, um, because of heavy gang violence, I started driving, you know, right at 16, um, between 16 to 17, I was probably pulled over in my neighborhood within a three mile vicinity, 60, 70 times, normally at gunpoint. Wow. <laughs> um, because that's just what police did during that period of time because they were afraid. Like police were being shot at during that period of time. So if anyone would have had hatred for the police and I wasn't doing anything, never in trouble, wasn't carrying weapons or drugs like you know they were they were looking for, it would have been me. But it was that police officer, which is why I respect them so much today for, for various other reasons besides that. But um, that just was the first person to ever tell me that. And it was just, that was kind of all I needed. And so that's why us doing things like this, sometimes a person just needs to hear, you can do it. Um, can't be you're better confidence. than that. Yeah, because my parents, my father never told me that. I saw a few times in my life. My mother never told me that. It was always the opposite. You're such a piece of shit. You're never going to be anything. That's what I heard my whole life. So it was that one thing right before I left. And then, you know, literally a week later, this opportunity came. I took it and just... All that shit, I said, once I had an opportunity to get into the industry, I, I said, I'm going to be the best I can. I'm going to outwork everybody. I'm going to put everything into it because this is probably the one shot I have in life to make something out of myself. And it wound up working out okay. Man, that's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, damn. But. You know, yeah, like I, I look back and, and we, were, we were talking earlier, like everyone's got a cross, right? You know, what you've gone through and other veterans have gone through, other people that have grown up in other countries, like way, <laughs> you think you know, a, you think of poverty in the US, go to somewhere like India or some of these other countries and you see what it, so everyone's got, you know, their own cross to bear. And I, and I never look at it like, oh, poor, poor me as a, at all. Um, and like I said, I didn't even realize it was bad till I was older. And I was like, shit, like I, I won't even let my daughter cross the street by herself right <laughs> so so uh you know i didn't realize it, it was that bad but it, you, know, you know in the same sense whether it was my situation or anything else i think it's one or one or two things like people could either use that as a catalyst which is what i did and i'd look at you know my my mother and uh my family and my situation and realize shit i never want to do this in my life and i'm gonna do everything the opposite uh, and motivation, or you can use it as an excuse, right? And I think more people, unfortunately, use it as an excuse, and it prevents them from ever doing anything in life. And so that's why the only reason I'm sharing this now is because, you know, I'm just hoping where someone says, well, yeah, that's me, or maybe, well, maybe I wasn't that bad, and maybe I can use that as a catalyst instead of using that as a continual crutch. I mean, now it's like, it, like people can't deal with any adversity these days. Like they go to Starbucks and instead of getting oat milk, they get almond milk and their latte and the freaking day's ruined, you know? So yeah. it's just like, you know, that, that, that's why I share it just to say like, look, no matter 
where you came from, no matter how hard it is, if you let that be an excuse and you let that be the roadblock from success, it's definitely going to do that. Or you could lose it as the opposite to where I'm like, bear market. Well, shit, I've been shot at. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't eaten in a day. Like, yeah, losing 20% of my stock portfolio, I think, I think I'll get past this. Like, you know, yeah. the adversity I deal with today is, is much easier than the diversity I grew, adversity I grew up with. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're talking about this because yeah. you don't know what you don't know. And, and so everybody that is stuck in a situation like that right now, yeah. and even, even beyond that, even... Gen Z and a lot yeah. of millennials think that the system's out to get them and they yeah. can't buy a house. And, and, yeah. and there's this huge movement now to just, if, if it's a little bit hard to get done, then let's just victimize ourselves exactly. and, and come yeah. up with an excuse. And, yeah. and, and then to hear a story like that, where you've made it completely out of that and you're really, you're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum now, that's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's, um, you know, one of these things that our system, our government um, has all wrong today, right? It's the, it's the old adage of uh, teach a man the fi- to, to fish versus give him the fish. And we're so focused on giving people the fish that, you know, they don't know how to fish for themselves anymore. Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things, you know, just like when I was a, a little kid, I, I realized I was better than that situation when I first started working, when I was you know 19, 20 years old in a, in a, in a real job, um, I remember people complaining about you know the rich and taxes and everything, and and um, you know a lot of people you know were 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 against you know people that were millionaires or whatever, and this whole movement of like well let's tax them and. And I, I always said, well, well, no, I, I, I'm eventually going to be there. <laughs> I, I just want the opportunity to get there. And when I get there, I don't want the government taking half my money, right? And it's just like when I, I you said, I, I, I uh, Shervis, I sold my business a few years ago, and um, you know, this is a business I started with no money. Um, I worked out of my bedroom. I couldn't, I couldn't afford a, a, to rent a place. I worked out of my bedroom. Uh, the first year I started, I couldn't afford to pay my bills, so my friend had a detail business. I was washing cars on the weekend at the golf course. Um, I was doing you know different jobs. I was buying stuff and selling it on eBay. This is this is with a college degree, and I was a stockbroker at the time, but I couldn't afford to pay my bills. Um, I had credit card debt at the time. Uh, the reason I tell you this, but I I, I built this business up. Uh, to where I sold it for for several millions of dollars, and when I saw the check that I had to write to the state of California and the federal oh, government, man, like I I just couldn't believe it, you know, because they were never there for me the years where I couldn't afford to pay my bills, and and then when you see what they do with the money is even worse, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. So now you're looking to get out of California. So now, yeah, that's where, I, that, yeah, outside of obviously doing your show, we're, we're looking at some real estate while we're here this weekend because, uh, yeah, I just, I, I can't continue to pay them the money I can. And I, I, you can't even send your kids to the schools. You don't even feel safe on the streets anymore. Um, you know, I talked about gas over there being almost $3 a gallon more with half of that just going to special interest taxes. It has nothing to do with the price of uh, a barrel of crude oil. It's, it's about special interest in Californians. Uh, and, you know, uh, capital goes where capital is appreciated. And I think the state of Tennessee gets it a little bit better right now than California we do. Does. We'd love to have you. I'm not going to lie. I was a little worried when yeah. <laughs> the last couple of years I've been worried seeing all the people from California moving here. Yep. But yep. Uh, 
Well, so I, far, I won't import we're just California taking all politics. The, we're just taking all the best ones and bringing them over, so it's working out pretty damn good, to be <laughs> honest like with you. But um, well, let's go back to school a little yeah, bit. So you went yeah. to Arizona State. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you continue on with that entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah, I went to Arizona State. I um, so I, I started um, with a firm called Waterhouse Securities. Uh, they were a New York-based firm out in Arizona during the time. Um, worked for them while I was going through college. Uh, they then... Um, were uh, bought out by TD Ameritrade and they moved their operations to California. And I actually bought my first home in a place called Mesa, Arizona when I was 19 years old in college. 19? Yeah, I was 19. Uh, I was working a telemarketing job, two telemarketing jobs after school. And I bought my first home, $56,000 in Mesa, Arizona. It was a two bedroom, one bath. I think it was about 900 square feet. Uh, but I learned really early on, I wanted to be an investor. I wanted to own property. And uh, when they came and said, hey, we can give you a job out in San Diego if you want to move, I said, that might be nice. I was from Southern California. And by that time, I'm like, hey, maybe it's safe to go back. It looked like it was getting a little better out there. Until I looked at what the price of real estate was, and I realized that to rent an apartment out there was going to be twice the price of what my mortgage payment was, so decided to stay out there, uh, and then wound up getting a job for a hedge fund um, during that time. And then with the hedge fund, um, I was working on the institutional side, but in 2001, 2002, the market, that was the previous market crash of the technology bust, we started getting a lot of individuals that wanted their money managed. And so I realized, okay, why don't we start a private wealth management side where we deal with individuals? And so I wanted to do a designation program uh, specific towards that. And there was a program through Wharton at the time that I applied for, um, got accepted to that. And then uh, from there, went out to Wharton. I met Jeremy Siegel, who's the offer of uh, Stocks for the Long Run, uh, just kind of life-changing uh, meeting with him and decided, you know, a couple of things. First of all, um, Wharton was a little bit different than some of the stuff I did at Arizona State. And I'll the, bet. <laughs> yeah, the level of education there was just um, amazing and realized it's something I wanted to be a part of. Um, applied for their advanced management program, which I graduated from, got a, became an alumni, which then allowed me to become a fellow, which I was a fellow there for about four years. So I spent about five years um, with Warden and just some of the greatest experience of my life really, really changed my life. And uh, it's what inspired me to leave the hedge fund in 2002 and start my own firm. Um, you know, the first year wasn't that easy, uh, but ultimately wound up being a success of mine. And then uh, towards the end of the firm, went back to school again, uh, did a dual, dual MBA program in Singapore and in uh, California, UCLA Anderson, the National University of Singapore, where it was an executive program where I took my business into the classroom, built it up, learned how to scale it, and uh, you know, left in 2016, we were growing 10, 12% a year, 16 to 19, we tripled revenue year after year after year. And I learned, okay, I finally understand what scaling means. All these things that I've been practicing and learning for you know, the last 10, 15 years came into play and uh, was able to sell that business. So you know, education, you know, like I say, and investing has just absolutely saved my life. It's been a game changer. And what I love about it, it's a skill set that's allowing me to help change other people's lives because there's so much misinformation, so much abuse out there 
of, of what's going on in the financial services industry. So, you know, if you hear about how I grew up and then what from 18 to you know, now I'm 48 years old, what my life's looked like, it's been the absolute opposite, exactly not the path I was supposed to be on, um, but tremendously blessed. And we're, as we we're talking, I'm now at a point in my career where I'm looking to give back and kind of, you know, there's no such thing that really is true altruism, I guess. It's not that I don't get paid for what I do, but I'm able to work with someone, whether they've got $2 or they've got a bunch of debt now to where whatever it is they have to, you know, kind of give back and help other people, you know, put them on the same path that I was able to fortunately find myself on. That's that's got to be pretty rewarding. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's 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 really good. I mean, some of the things we're doing today, and I've got another analyst that works with me and goes, you know, I just helped a family open up their first brokerage account with $200, and I feel better than some of the things we've done with families for $100 million plus that we've been managing for the last 15 years. It's much more rewarding. Wow. And, and I agree with that. That's awesome yeah. to hear. Yeah. So you, you built... You basically built your business in school? I did. Well, so I built it um, about seven years before I went to school. But, you know, it's one of these things where I always tell people it's it's pretty easy in the U.S. to take a business and go from zero to a million. Like I, I, I hit a million dollars, my first million dollars in income in my early 30s. And I just did that by just busting my ass, <laughs> working seven days a week calling people all the time, bugging people, showing up five minutes early at everywhere, staying 20 minutes later. Where I think if you just bust your ass and work hard, because fortunately for people who want to do that, most people don't, you stand out in a sea of um, mediocrity, right? And you're able to do pretty good and you can just get yourself there. But to take your business past that, you know, like I said, I, I hit that ceiling about seven years into the business where I couldn't grow because I couldn't scale, I couldn't get beyond myself. And I didn't necessarily create a business. Um, like a lot of people, I tell them, you know, I really just bought myself a job. <laughs> I probably could have been doing the same thing at Merrill Lynch or UBS. I wouldn't have been able to do it under my own terms, but um, it wasn't a scalable business. People were buying me. And so the problem was um, I couldn't spend any more time with anyone else. I was maxed out. I couldn't work more than 12 hours a day, 13 hours a day. I couldn't work more than seven days a week. And that's where I really got frustrated is like, how do I get to that next level? And so a lot of people were confused because I was 38 when I went back to school. They're like, why are you doing an MBA, spending 150000 another two years? I said, because I, I just don't know how to, everyone keeps telling me scale. That's like the buzzword, scale, scale. I, I don't know what that means. You know, I'd been out of school for a while and um, I, I learned a little bit about an awarding, but I said like, I need to spend a little bit more time in the classroom, spoke, focused specifically on this. And so I looked for programs. And so this was an executive MBA where you had to have at least 10 years of work experience in it. And so it was really geared towards people to where the last three years of my business, I basically went into the classroom and took my business model, pressed other students, pressed professors, and got them to help me rework a plan to really learn how to scale it. And once I implemented that, I was able to see just tremendous growth. How do you hire? How do you create systems? How do you create processes? And as I said, like I was growing 8 10% the previous four or five years. We grew 100% year over year over year to the third year until we were bought. 
And, um, you know, I work with entrepreneurs during that period of time as clients, and I started implementing those same things into their business, saw someone's business go from a $5 million valuation to about an $80 million valuation in two years, and I realized, shit, I've got something here. And so for me, when I sold, and I sold to a publicly traded company, so you get the big, when you're selling, whenever I tell people, when you sell your business where, let's say, $8, $10 million and above, it's not like Joe Blow, the accountant, coming in to do the due diligence. They're sending the big accounting firms in there. They're doing heavy due diligence, a publicly traded company, turning over all rocks. And when they bought my company from me, you know, I could help other people, you know, sell, you know, buy, sell businesses. But when you're doing it yourself, it's a little bit different, right? When they're checking under the hood, when it's your money that's at stake. And I was 100% over owner of the business at that time. When I sold the business and I saw what I was able to do, and this was in 2019, that was really the validation to where, okay, I got I got to figure it out now. I know what I'm doing. I've done it for other people. Now I've done it for myself. And um, I realized I want to show other people how to do that on scale because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are working really, really hard, but they're not working smart. There's things that they can do to change it. And it's, and it's the same thing with investing, Sean, and why you, know, you ask about this Reddit movement. The shit's not really that hard. <laughs> Once, you, wait, it, it's just it's it, like there's things that you do right to where it's like, well, how do you do that? Like you, and it, it's really not that hard. But our industry, uh, big consulting firms like Accenture, and McKinsey, everyone wants to keep this stuff a secret so they could charge people thousands of dollars a year. But it's like if if you're willing to work with me and put in some effort for a year, two years, your life will change, and because you, you're going to learn off mistakes that clients of mine have made, I've made for 20 years. Four, I'm an alumnus of four different schools that I've gone through to create this this roadmap. Shit, I'm 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 gonna be 50 in a couple of years. I wish I would have learned this 20 years ago, but at least I finally got it, and now I'm trying to teach younger people how to do that themselves. That's a, that's awesome. Who can you say who bought your company? Yeah, the company's called CI Financial. So they're uh, they were a Canadian company at the time, traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. They wanted to get into the U.S. market, um, so I uh, and they were going to do that through M and A. So I was the first business they bought in the U.S. and they kind of used that and scaled it up. We were just under a billion dollars, and over the last three years, they've scaled it up to they're about 150 billion in the U.S. and they're now uh, they went public on the New York Stock Exchange about a year and a half ago. Also, so very fast growing company. Wow, yeah. how, how did you? get that deal in front of them. Yeah, so and it's everything, I'll, I'll tell you, like one of the keys to success, um, Sean, just like how we met, is relationships. Um, you could be the smartest person in the world, but if you don't have somebody that's willing to open a door for you, it's not gonna really mean anything to you. So going back to Wharton, um, Jeremy Siegel uh, was involved with a company called Wisdom Tree. It's a big ETF fund, which is like a mutual fund type of type of deal. Um, they asked he asked me to go and sit on the board over there. So I sat on the board for about a year of Wisdom Tree. And the guy, his name's Kurt McAlpine, who was uh, kind of next to be CEO of the company, was recruited away by CI to be the CEO of CI Financial. He was 38 at the time, the youngest CEO ever of a publicly traded company over there. And so uh, he had to sell them pretty hard of how they were gonna grow. They'd always hired from, from within. This is the first time they looked outward. He said, I'm gonna grow your business into the US and we're gonna, t we're gonna grow and scale uh, the RAA business, which means Registered Investment Advisor, which are uh, it, it firms that give advice for, for a fee. And he said, I'm gonna grow and scale that business. And uh, two weeks after he was hired, 
Um, from what he tells me, that was the first call that he made uh, here in the U.S. And he said, hey, I, I, I want to talk to you about something. And we sat down, and I had no idea who the hell CI Financial was, but I'm a, I, I, why, why going back to why I like investing in businesses, I like people. I invest in people, and I knew Kurt was going to be a rock star. Uh, and so my bet was on Kurt and uh, kind of went in and sold to him. I said, hey, I'll, I'll give you three, three years, Kurt. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to survive well in the world of publicly traded companies, but I'll, I'll give you three years and uh, wind up selling to him. And uh it's been a good run, but I've realized I'm not a publicly traded uh, kind of guy. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and so you know, this will, next month will be my my last month there. Was it hard for you to sell your baby like that? You know, it it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't, Sean, because a couple of things. Um, I realized, even though I was able to grow the business exponentially for the last three years, I realized there was a lot of legacy issues that I didn't like, and I also realized in that business. Um, that we were overcharging people, right? I realized as I was able to scale, um, these certain things can be done a lot more efficiently, uh, a lot leaner than what we were doing before. And at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was create a system and a model that was way cheaper than what we were doing. But the problem was, <laughs> if I'm going to charge 20 to 30% more, less, I'm sorry, 20 to 30% of what I was charging, but my cost structure to advisors, for example, is way higher than that. Well, I can't charge my top line less than what I'm paying my advisors. That's not going to work. So I had set up a business model that I was pretty much trapped into. And so when they came along, I said, this is probably a time to get out. And I negotiated, obviously, to where I said, if I could just get enough money <laughs> to, to kind of take care of myself and my family, spend these three years, that'll allow me to then go and maybe not build the business that I had, but the business that I want to build. And that's kind of what this gave me the opportunity to do. Because I, I just think the traditional wealth management model, the way Wall Street does things right now, you know, it, it's just broken. It's too expensive. It's too slow. It's not giving people what they need. But it's kind of hard to disrupt yourself, right? You got to be able to feed yourself. And so it was kind of the right opportunity to allow me to kind of get out of a model I didn't believe in any longer. Interesting. Very interesting. Let's take a quick break. Yep. Serious question. Who wants to take the best shit of their entire life? Right here, I do. How do you do that? You go with Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein. You rip the thing open, you put it in your coffee, you stir it up, and you're on your way. Now, if taking the best shit of your entire life doesn't interest you, Collagen will also give you beautiful hair, great skin, and nails to die for. So, and you'll recover a lot quicker in between workouts if that's your thing. So now that we got the good shit out of the way, get it? <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Bubs the company. Bubs is a tribute company to Glenn Bubs Doherty, who was a Navy SEAL and a CIA contractor who died defending American freedom in Benghazi, Libya. Bubs donates 10% of all proceeds to veteran organizations like the Glenn Doherty Foundation and 100% of all proceeds on Veterans Day. Let me tell you about Bubs' latest product that helps with energy, healthy digestion, your immune system, and your metabolism. Bub's Naturals Apple Cider Vinegar Gummies. 
which actually tastes so damn good that I ate all 60 of them the first, <laughs> the first night I got them. They taste amazing, and man, I got a lot of energy now. Anyways, go to bubsnaturals.com, use promo code SEAN to take 20% off your order. Thank you, Bubs Naturals, for being a sponsor of The Sean Ryan Show. All right, Rob, we covered a lot of your background. I just had a couple of questions. Yeah. How long did it take you to make your first million doing that? My first million in the industry, so I, I started in my early 20s, probably about my first, first year I made a million, I think it was 32, so probably about 12 years. 12 years? Yeah, 12 years. And, um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's another point. I think it's a tough, it was a tough industry, but I think there's a lot of tough industries to where I think people give up a little bit too soon on things. You know, I've, I've got a buddy who you know, I always talk about, I use him as an example, unfortunately, but he was in that same training class at Waterhouse that I was in. We had the same opportunity. Um, but when things got tough in, in 2000, we weren't making any money. He decided to go to leave the industry and do some sales job. I forgot where, but I didn't talk to him in a few years. And then it was you know, made public when I sold my business, he called me up and to congratulate me. He said, you know what, man, I wish, I wish I would have, <laughs> I wish I would have stuck it out. I wish I would have stayed in the industry. And he's, he said, you know, I'd made a mistake. He goes job, 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 job hopping this to that, to this, to that, trying to catch the next trend, selling solar, doing all these things. And he said, dude, I'll, I'll be lucky if I could even pay my mortgage this year. You know, I barely scraping by, but it's, two situations we both had this and he 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 uh he had a pretty easy childhood uh, unlike me and maybe that was part of the problem right is yeah. things are a little bit too easy but uh yeah it took me I, I tell people before i knew what i was doing as a financial advisor and before i made any money it was over a decade that i that I had to stick through it when you hit your first million did you feel this huge sense of accomplishment or was it that's great let's get back to work um hmm Reason I ask is because a lot of high performers, a lot of very driven people, they never, I'm one of them. Yeah. I never take the time to celebrate the wins. Yeah. It's always, I'll get all pissed off about the losses. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But I never take time <laughs> to celebrate the wins. It drives my wife crazy. You, you, well, you, as you said that, I'm thinking my wife's trying to get me to, ch to change that a little bit. You know, I, um, I'm just trying to remember back how I felt. I didn't give you an honest answer, but yeah, to that point, I, I don't, I don't think so because my whole idea is where I knew where I wanted to go and I was still so far. And one of the <laughs> blessings and curses about my business, you know, I was working with people that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Yeah. So, so it's all relative to where like, I made a million, but that's not even my, this guy's tax bill last year was three and a half, <laughs> four million bucks. So yeah, I, I never consider in today I, by no means do I consider myself wealthy. So um, I, I just say that because you know people want to know like how for some reason that's the mystery number. How long did it take you to get to a million bucks? I think I think it was I was thirty one, thirty two, so about eleven to twelve years before I made my first million. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> when you started, how were you, Mark? How were you getting in with these people? Yeah, so so great question. So um, when I first started, when I first started in the industry, you know, they told me Sean was. Um, write down a list of all the people you know <laughs> that have money <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and give them, that's the, the truth, God's honest truth, and give them, give them a call and see if they'll invest with you. So that took me about 14 seconds to uh, act like I was going to write something down. No, I didn't. So I started 
cold calling. I started calling people out of the yellow pages uh, back then when people used to do that. And I brought a few clients on. But I think going back to relationships, I had one opportunity, um, a guy named Anthony Pinto, early on in my career, my first year, he was a CPA from Brooklyn. He was out in Arizona at the time and uh, met him and uh, asked him to manage some money for him. Uh, Didn't even know he was a CPA at the time. And he said, yeah, told me what he did. He said, look, I'll give you one of my accounts and one of my family's accounts and you manage it for a year. And if you do a good job, I'll then refer you to some of my clients. And people don't know, for financial advisors, the best place to get business or referrals is from a CPA because the CPA is looking at how much money they make, what type of things they should be doing on the investment side. And a lot of people trust their CPA. So for a recommendation comes from him, it's usually pretty good. So um, I credit Anthony, uh, this was back in 0203, for really kind of putting me on the map with my first million million dollar types of clients. Before then, I was working with just about anybody, uh, 20 grand, 30, whatever, whatever it is you wanted to invest, I was doing it. That was my first time. That, now that I was excited about <laughs> because the first time someone gave me a million dollars to invest, I was like, shit, okay, finally. <laughs> you know, I was 20 something years old and I came from, from nothing. And I said, okay. And, um, you know, that person is still a client today. Uh, I think she's 81 years old now. She's been a client of mine for, um, you know, almost 20 years. And, uh, she is uh, out in New York. My wife and I just went and had uh, lunch with her out in New York a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just a great woman. And uh, that's what, you know, one thing you got to just appreciate the people that, that gave you your start. And so, yeah, without her and people like Anthony, it never would have opened the door. And it's just one of those things that's like, um, what is it, Roger Bannister, once he broke the, what was it, three-minute mile or whatever, all of a sudden everybody started to do it, right? No one believed they could do it. So once I broke that million, that gave me the confidence to where, oh, yeah, my minimum's a million, of course. <laughs> you know, so just one million dollar plus client came and then it was five million minimum, $10 million. And when I finished, it was $25 million minimum just a few years ago. Well, coming from uh, the background and the childhood that you came yeah. from, did, were you intimidated by... The yeah, ultra I was, wealthy class. Yeah, I was super intimidated um, for probably the first thirteen to fourteen years, and I and I had especially when I made you know that first million dollars, and so yeah, I, I guess now that I'm I'm thinking about it, um, I had imposter syndrome, right? I was thinking like I shouldn't be making you start guilty. You're like, am I, am I telling people the right thing? Am I putting them in something that I shouldn't be? Like, I really started worrying about like, why am I making a million dollars? So when I think I'd never really congratulated myself. I was just worried that it could end, you know, cause I knew where I came from and I never wanted to be poor again. And again, I was dealing with people that were just so far away from what I grew up with or out of my league. And so outside of learning finance, I was going to first growth wineries and I was learning about fine art and I was learning how to tie a double Windsor knot. And so I was trying to immerse myself into that culture. And so with a genuine interest and I wanted to learn it, but in a a way you're like, you feel like a little bit of an imposter. And, 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 And quite honestly, I started to learn so much that I had people that were 65 years old coming ask me about what wine to buy when I was 30 or 31 years of age. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I felt uh, felt a, a little bit guilty, a little bit worried, um, but then say so and definitely intimidated until um, I became an alumnus of Wharton. 
And so that's why I, I even like, Wharton doesn't need any money, but I give them money just because they bet on me, right? They gave me a chance. And then, uh, and, I, and I, got, I even bought the big book, right, for Wharton the year that I, that I got alumni status and my name was in there. Like, and I had no family members that even knew what Wharton was or anything. I don't, I don't have one family member that I talk to now. But the sense of pride and accomplishment and, um, that I had, and I started to realize about 10 years ago um, that I was pretty good at what I was doing. And I, I started learning that when I would go away from the people that I listened to on television, books that I read, and did things the way I thought they should be, that the results were actually better. And so I had, you know, it took me about 15 years before I was in the industry. I started doing things on my own to where I started to believe in my own opinion, my own credibility, because I saw it. And I saw things I was doing on the side with my own money versus what I was doing more industry specific and status quo for my clients. That was what everyone should be doing. And I was making two to three times more money. I was wow. like, well, wait, there's, there's something wrong with you know this. It's called modern portfolio theory that's been taught since the 1950s that everyone just kind of follows. And I don't believe in it. I'm doing different things with my different things with my money. And then that's why I started working with higher net worth clients because they had, you know, when you deal with higher net worth clients in my business, you could take on some more risk with them. They have money that doesn't have to be in the traditional types of models. And so I started implementing those strategies with them. And that in terms of my career and business has started getting me working with the ultra high net worth celebrities, athletes. That's what did it is when I started delivering returns to them. And that's, I think, the point in time where I realized, okay, I deserve to be at this table. And now I'm at a point where um, I, I feel like I could sit with anybody, as long as I'm talking about you know, economics or finance, and I deserve to be at that table. We might have a difference of op opinion, but it's really good when you know you can't be discredited. Yeah. <laughs> but that takes a long time. You know, and, and I still have a long way to go, but it takes a long time to feel that level of confidence. I think once you do that, that's, that's really when you, know, you, you feel freedom as a person in what you're doing. <clears throat> and that got rid of the imposter syndrome. <laughs> Scale in your business. Yeah. How did you scale it? Mm -hmm. So you, you, you went to school to learn how to yeah. scale. Well, actually, what is your definition of scaling the business? Yeah. So the definition of scaling the business is, you know, what I always ask people, right? I could ask you is, um, if can your business function without you? No. Yeah. So first ask, think I ask entrepreneurs and um, most of them will tell me no. I said, okay. And then some of them will tell me, yeah, probably. I said, okay. Second question, can your business grow without you? And then most of them will then say no. And so the idea is how do you create a business that is able to function first and then grow without you being in there? Because if you haven't done that, you've really just bought yourself a job. And so the whole idea about creating a business that has enterprise value is it becomes your largest asset when you do it correctly, right? So I've done a lot of investing, real estate, stocks, bonds, cryptocurrency, that hasn't worked out so good so far, but um, uh, baseball cards, nothing, nothing, and it's some really home runs that I've made, but nothing nearly as much as money I made in selling my business. And remember, I didn't put any money into my business. I started with credit cards and the multiple that I got and the absolute dollar amount I got was higher than anything else. And that's the power of building a business, right? And that's why I try to teach everyone entrepreneurism. You you built your business off credit cards? Oh yeah, off credit card debt. 
Yeah, I, I started when, when people ask, well, how much money did you start? Well, I didn't have any money. I, I, I borrowed money. I had credit card debt to start the business because I couldn't pay for the licensing. I couldn't pay for the software. I didn't have any. I had a few thousand bucks saved, but I had expenses. And so credit card debts. And uh, at the time, my, my wife was working and uh, I was washing cars on the weekend. That's how I started my business. You know, and so when I sold it for, I can't say the number, but it was several millions of dollars that I, that I sold it for. Um, that was, you know, it was life-changing money for me um, that I sold. And that's what I, I try to teach people because everyone wants to know, hey, Rob, how do, I, how do I get wealthy? How do I make money? And everyone wants me to, you know, they see me on TV like, what stock? <laughs> what yeah. stock? Or when it was crypto is hot, what, what coin do I buy? Or where should I buy real estate? And the truth is that's not going to get you wealthy because if you got five grand and I tell you something that's going to even go up 20 something percent a year, well, what are you going to turn that five grand into? 20 grand, 30 grand? It's not going to be enough. Right. And so, again, back to when they came to me and said, hey, call the people, you know, without money. Well, shit, I don't know anybody without money. What else do I do? So I tell people who don't have money to make more money is you got to start a business, dude. And you got to first get that business to where it's making enough money to pay your bills. Okay, job number one. Number two, to where it's making excess money. And to where that excess money is what you send, start putting away. And gradually every year, now you're investing. Your business first makes an extra 10 grand, you invest it, then 20 grand, and you invest it, and 40 grand. You don't keep upping your lifestyle in excess of your business. You keep that behind there. But then what you need to focus on is how you make this business your biggest asset. So, how do you take some of that money, put systems in place? put processes in place, put people in place to where eventually that business can grow and operate without you. And that's when you've created a business that has enterprise value. And I told people, if you can do that, that's what's going to create real wealth for you. I don't know how to create wealth any other way. I'm sure there's ways to do it, but that's what I did. That's what I've helped other people do. And you can only teach what you know yourself. So people who invest in real estate because they know it, I get that. If you're able to become a multimillionaire billionaire just in real estate, shit, you don't need stocks. Like I, there's no one way to do it, Sean. <laughs> like, yeah. I, it's just finding out. So I teach people what I know how to do. And so why do I love stocks? It's not necessarily stocks. Take away stock market, take away stocks. I love businesses that I can understand. And I love even more private businesses because you don't have to deal with some of the reporting and all that nonsense that I can get in there and actually add value to. And if you could solve a problem in this world, and there's a lot of problems, better than anyone else on scale, you're going to make a lot of money. And that's really what a business's ultimate goal is, whether it's your business or a manufacturing business or an advice business. It's about solving a problem better than anyone else and making a bigger impact in people's lives than anyone else on scale. That's what we're all trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to scale my business, but I can't find somebody to conduct these damn interviews. Yeah. But, uh, but um, well, there's other ways to do it. We can, we can kind of talk about that. Right? I would love to talk to you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do to scale yours? And, yes. and, and with scaling, it sounds like that's relinquishing a lot of control, which is very is. hard to do for it's entrepreneurs. Very, it's, it's, the, it's the toughest thing to do, especially when it's an advice business, right? Because what people, especially early on, what people weren't buying is, like I could have been at Merrill Lynch, Morgan, like people don't give a shit about that. People were buying Rob Luna. They were buying me. And at the end of the day, people buy two things, who they like and who they trust. Right, and I never took that for granted. You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm forget about money that I'm most proud of in the industry is, um, you know, in our industry, it's very regulated. Uh, everything's disclosed. So even if you said, "Hey, Rob, I didn't like the stocks Rob put on me, and I lost five bucks," 
if you say that publicly, it goes on my public record. You can see that on the SEC website, every complaint. You look at the big firms, they're literally getting complaints every week. So it doesn't necessarily make an advisor bad if he's had a complaint because people complain about any anything these days. But in 25 years of being registered, I never had one complaint. That's through uh, 2000, 2008, 2009, where shit went down because it's about under-promising and over-delivering. Being completely transparent, doing what you say you're gonna do. And just again, back to being an entrepreneur and being successful, all those things sound simple, but the most people don't really do that. In this just world. to hear you say that is refreshing. <laughs> yeah, but under it, promise, it, over deliver. It's nobody has that concept. Nobody, anymore. and especially like, I, I, I don't know, like my wife and I've been talking like since COVID, it just seems like I, I don't know if the, like people's brains got messed up, but it just seems like the last two years. <laughs> Every business I deal with just got progressively worse, and the bar is set so low, which is good news for entrepreneurs because there's more problems than ever that have to be solved out there right now, and there's not a lot of people, it seems, apparently, that are able to execute on them. They've all victimized themselves. Yeah, they're all, exactly. They're, they're waiting for the check to show up. But uh, another question, just I'm curious. Yeah. You, we all see social media. Mm-hmm. We see the Lambos, the Ferraris, yeah. the private jets, the... Yeah. Yeah. I have all of this. Look yeah. at how magnificent yeah. I am. Yeah. You get to see behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. You get to see behind the curtain. How many people, like when you wrote down all the people that you knew that had money, yeah. if there was any, yeah. how many did you call or have you called along the way where you thought, oh, man, this person's crushing it. Oh, and man. It turns you, out it's all debt. Yeah. You, you know what, Sean? It, it, like you said, um, in my business... I get to see everything because if you're going to work with me, you got to show me everything. You got to show me your tax returns. You got to show me your assets, your, your whole balance sheet, and your whole life, or, or I, I can't really help you. And so, especially when I was younger, what did I do? I, I chased after the people that looked wealthy, the people that had the nice cars, that had the nice whatever it was. And at the end of the day, and look, you can't overgeneralize everything, but I'll, I'll tell you this: a lot of my wealthiest clients. Drove Ford pickup trucks. <laughs> uh, they paid cash for their homes. They didn't have fancy cars. Not, not. I mean, I, I drive, drive nice cars. I like nice things. But you can't, from the outside in, determine because that person might be one Lambo lease payment away from going bankrupt. <laughs> uh, and I've seen that. I've seen that from time to time. So there's just no. I've learned a long time ago. You look at somebody, you look at some of my clients that are literally worth three, four hundred, one that's worth eight hundred million dollars, and you'll think he's just, you know, he can work at Costco, right? You just don't know. So it, it doesn't, and everyone's definition of success, what wealth is, what matters is completely different. Um, What's it mean to you? It means choice. It means having choice. I mean, that's that's what money provides is choice. And I think... The thing about wealthy financial freedom for me is having choice because I grew up with no choice, right? Like I, I didn't, you know, I, I had to create my own choice, feed myself, put my, get myself into a better situation. I just took what was ever given was given to me my whole life, right? And so, um, and as I, and that was even like kind of the last thing when I sold my business. Like I even, you know, early on in my career, I had to work with people I didn't like, I couldn't stand. I didn't agree with, right? Because I didn't have any choice. I had to pay my bills. So we do shit. And like, I, the good thing for young people, like, look, you're, uh, like, pride's a good thing, but sometimes you got to swallow your pride to pay your bills, especially if you have kids. You got to keep a roof over their head, right? And so I've done a lot of things in my life that I didn't want to do, 
But with financial freedom, like now I don't work with people I don't like. You know, if I don't like you, I'm not going to work with you just because you're going to make my fucking life miserable and it's just not worth it, right? No dollar amount. And that's truth, true, Sean. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, bullshit. There's, no, there's not. Yeah. You know, because at the end of the day, the other thing I've realized, like I've said, I, I, I'm nowhere near worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I'm okay. But um, what I've realized is, you know, once you hit a certain amount, like say you got 15, 20 million, not that, that that's a lot of money, right? But 15, 20 million, like you're not doing stuff different than someone with 400 million or 800. It's just a lot more zeros, yeah. right? And I don't care about a lot more zeros. I just care about, I want to live where I want. I want to say what I want. <laughs> I want to be around people what I want. I want to eat what I want. I want to wear what I want. I want to shoot what I want. I want to do whatever I want to do and not have to worry about backlash that I won't be able to pay my bills or anything like that. Yeah. That's to me, that's that's what that's what wealth is to me. I think that's a damn good definition. Yeah. And sometimes it changes. I used to like Ferraris. Like I'm selling a Ferrari. I don't, I'm I'm done with them. I don't like it. I'm more into trucks now and land. That's why I'm out here, you know. <laughs> I, I used to be really into hunting, now I'm coming back. Like, it's just, it just depends on where you're at in life, right? Yeah. But uh yeah, and that's what I tell people that I worked with and I don't care what your definition of wealth is. You tell me what it is to you and let's get there. Let's forget what everyone else is telling you to do. Right on. Yeah. What for for everyday investors, what's yeah. some what are some of the mistakes that you just keep seeing over and yeah. over and over what are the most common mistakes that everyday investors make? They have no plan. Right, that's that's the biggest thing, Sean. Is you know, I was, I was saying earlier, you're in. You should be investing with purpose. Like every dollar that you invest should have a very specific purpose. It should have a time frame associated with it. It ha- should have a, a a rate of return that's associated with it. Uh, whether that's a piece of raw land that you're looking to buy for a hundred thousand now and sell it fifteen years for three hundred thousand. Or it should have an income stream associated with it. So when I'm buying a bond, I'm buying it for that coupon that it's paying me. Or I'm buying an apartment because it's paying me rental income every month. People don't have a plan. They don't have, you know, when you hear an investment portfolio, like a lot of people say, I have an investment portfolio. Okay, what does that mean? What an investment portfolio should mean is a group of assets that are strategically working together to achieve one common goal. And that common goal for most individuals should be to support their lifestyle, right? And so what I try to get people to do is first first focus on where are you at today, right? Everything. Do you have debt? Do you have some money in stocks? Do you have some money in real estate? I got to understand that, figuring where you're at, and you should figure out where that is. And then Let's paint your ideal lifestyle. What do you want that to look like? Do you want a house with five acres or you want a brand new truck every five? Let's paint what that looks like and let's quantify that, right? And so when I can quantify the dollar amount that it's going to take to get there and support that in terms of cash flow and I see where we're at right now, that leaves a deficit. So it's just called reverse engineering. And then I know based off of how much I could save, how much I could realistically earn, how long it's going to take to get there. And so everything that I start investing in has the strategic purpose to get me from A to B. Okay. Because I'm investing for financial freedom. I'm investing for what I, because I, I work with a lot of athletes who had the money they needed by the time they were 30. So I hate the word retirement. I call it work optional. <laughs> I'm investing to where I'm working because I want to work, not because I have to work. And I think that, back to the definition of freedom, I think that's what everybody wants. They want to work because they're doing stuff 
they like, they like being involved. And I could tell you, Sean, like most successful people, they cannot retire. <laughs> they, they can't retire and just sit around and do nothing. They're, I'll always be working and doing something no matter how much money I have. Um, so I think most, for going back to your question, I'm sorry, I got off topic a little bit, is you got to create that plan. And if you don't know how to do that, that's what you got to find an advisor to do. And you don't need to give somebody, find a good certified financial planner out there Tell them that's what I want to do. Help me quantify that what that looks like. And that's the roadmap you need to get on. And you need to start investing towards that. And that'll kind of tell you how much in real estate, how much in stocks, how much of those things that you need to do. So the biggest mistake is people don't have an investment portfolio. They just bought a bunch of different shit and they're hoping it goes up. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no strategy behind it. So that's, that's the mistake is they're investing in things that aren't consistent with what their goals are. That makes sense. Going back to land, I'm kind of bouncing around here because yeah. I just have some. No, I no, want to no, pick yeah. your brain, but yeah. at the beginning, I asked that question about um, tangible versus yeah. non-tangible assets, and in I did get into the crypto game. Yeah, way late. Yep, <laughs> and uh, a, lot, a lot, a lot of people did. Yeah, and it didn't work out for me. Yeah, and I don't know anything about the stock market. When mm. I see the things like AMC and yeah, whatever the other ones were. You know, the back when they were whatever the short. <clears throat> yep. That makes me very skeptical. Sure. I can't touch it. I feel like the market is super manipulated by, by, by the world banks and, right. and stuff like that. So I like precious metals. I like land. I like houses, property. Not that I have a ton of it, but that's just. And, and when I think about land. We talked about how it's not a it's not a liquid asset. Yeah. But what I do like about land is you could put a house on it, you could right. run it, you could farm it, you could run it out as a hunting complex. You could. Yeah. There's a lot of different things you could try to flip it. Yeah. You can hold it with a stock. I feel like I don't have any options. Ex all my op my options either to sell or to hold, and yeah. that's it. Yep. Yeah. 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 So you know, I think it goes back to understanding again. Um, where you're at and what you're trying to accomplish, right? Because so, you know, stocks, you know, there's two ways to make money in stocks. Number one is through capital gains, buy low, sell high, right? The second way is through dividend income streams, right? And so um, let's use Procter & Gamble, for example. If I show you, and everyone's used Procter & Gamble, toothpaste, toilet paper, all, all these things, right? They've been around for 100 years. Procter & Gamble, if I showed you the last 70 years of a stock chart, right? And one thing that we'll agree on, just because it's, it's, it's one simple fact, is over the long run, the stock market always goes up. Every single correction has been a buying opportunity up until this last one. We just were hitting new highs two years ago. So every single correction. So that we can't argue that, that stocks over the long run go up. Now you have three, five-year periods where they go sideways and down, but they always go up over time because the things that we buy from Procter & Gamble aren't the same price. They raise prices over time, so they're able to keep up with inflation because we need toilet paper, we need toothpaste and all those things. But if I showed you a stock chart of it over 70 years, yes, it's from the left to upper right, it's gone up over time, but then there's been periods where it's down 25, 30%, 40%, and that's what scares everybody, right? But if I showed you a, a chart of their dividend, meaning quarterly they pay you income for owning the stock, and right now it's probably about three point something percent, which doesn't sound great anymore, but that was really good when the bank was paying you like one. 
If I show you that chart, it goes from the left to the right, just like the stock, but without any downturn. And what that means is over the last 70 years, not only have they paid you that income, they increased it every year. They gave you a raise, so it's 3% today, but they've raised it every single year over 70 years. And there's dozens and dozens of companies. You can Google the dividend aristocrats. You could actually buy an ETF that invests just in companies that for a minimum of 20 years have not only maintained, but increased their dividends. So that's an easy way that people could do that, right? And that's income that, because if you buy a bond, the problem with bonds is they don't give you a raise. It's 3% for, for 10 straight years, where these dividend income producing high quality companies have paid you that income stream. And I have clients that have enough in just dividends that they're able to pay their bills off of. And they're wow. diversified. So again, it's not there's not one size fits all. I personally believe people should have real estate. People should have stocks. People should have bonds. You know, five percent in some of these speculative assets like uh, cryptocurrency, other things that you want to do. And one reason I say five percent is because if it goes to zero, you don't miss a beat. Your portfolio can make that back up in you know six months, twelve months. Where people get hurt in any asset class, real estate, crypto gold precious metals, stocks, is when they go all in, they're levered, and they don't have time for it to recover. You know, I saw this in Arizona in uh, 2007, 2008, you know, that there, when the market crashed, uh, stock, I'm sorry, real estate market crashed, stocks also, obviously. Um, you know, I knew clients at the time that had 20, 30 million equity in real estate deals. We encouraged them to sell, didn't sell, and they thought they were okay because they said, hey, we've, we've got you know, 70% loan to value, meaning they had 30% equity. So if they bought a million dollar property, they put 300,000 down, they borrowed 700,000. They said, we got you know, 70% loan to value, we can handle it. Well, what they didn't count on is that, uh, real estate prices going down 40%, 45%. And then they were underwater. And then they had revolving notes where the bank said, yeah, you can keep the real estate, but we need you to bring in another $10 million to increase your equity back up. And when they couldn't do that, they were forced to sell at, at liquidation value and they lost $20, $30 million in equity. Does that make real estate a bad investment? Or does that mean they were just over levered? <laughs> that they didn't have the timing right? That they didn't have it allocated the right way? It's the same thing with stocks when people buy on margin or they buy stocks that they need to pay their bills within six months and they go down 20% and now they need to sell at a loss and now stocks suck. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it, all these things are good, but it's how do they work and consistent with your plan, most importantly, and are you proportionately dividing your assets in the right way? Are you giving them enough time? Or, because any of these things, crypto, gold, land, stocks, you can, you can gamble with them also. And you can get really lucky and do really well, or you can lose everything. And that's just a game I don't, I don't play. I have no idea, I tell people. If you're coming to me thinking that I know what's gonna happen in the next 90 days, no idea. But I can tell you I've been doing this for 25 years and if you give me three years, you'll make money. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know what's gonna happen. If, you're telling, if you want me to tell you, because if I could tell you what's gonna happen in the next six days, I wouldn't, I'd be on some island somewhere just cashing in. I wouldn't be yeah. you know, charging you to, to tell you what to do with your money. Good point. <clears throat> well, let's take Let's take another break, yep, yep. and then when we come back, we'll dive into the economy. The economy, all right. All right. <laughs> I don't know much, but what I do know is my audience. And I know a lot of you are similar to me, and you probably chew tobacco. I used to chew tobacco too. I chewed it in Afghanistan, I chewed it in Iraq. 
I chewed it in the sniper hide. I chewed it out of the sniper hide. I chewed it before the op. I chewed it after the op. I chewed it on night vision. I chewed it while I was shooting. I chewed it pretty much all the time. And then I realized it was becoming a problem. My blood pressure started rising. What I really noticed was I started getting lightheaded when I would do strenuous activities. Now I've come a long way since those days and I've quit chewing tobacco, but it wasn't easy. You see, I totally get it. The ritual that goes behind putting that beautiful, tasty dip in your mouth when you're doing whatever it is you like doing when you're chewing tobacco. Now there's an easier way to do it than doing it cold turkey. You see, there's this company out there called Black Buffalo. It's a chewing tobacco alternative. They have cans with nicotine, without nicotine, long cut, and pouches, and they have all of our favorite flavors that we as chewers love, like Black Buffalo Wintergreen, Black Buffalo Straight, Black Buffalo Mint, and for you foo-foo types, they have those flavors too. Blood Orange and even Peach. Black Buffalo is also a proud supporter of active duty military personnel, U.S. veterans, law enforcement, and first responders. Black Buffalo is also made 100% right here in the U.S. of A. Black Buffalo is not recommended for anybody under 21, or if you do not chew tobacco, it's not recommended for you either. Black Buffalo products do not contain tobacco leaf or stem. Go to blackbuffalo.com, use the code SRS to save 15%. That's blackbuffalo.com, use the promo code SRS to save 15%. All right, Rob, the economy. Mm -hmm. What the hell is going on? I thought gold, I thought precious metals were supposed to track inflation. Mm -hmm. They're just going down, it seems like. Stock market's going down. Real estate seemed like, at least here in Tennessee, it seemed like it was a light switch. Mm -hmm. Before it was, houses were selling 24 hours on the market for over asking cash buyers. Now it's like just, it's it literally was like a light switch, it's like crickets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No more cash buyers. Nobody's buying anything over asking anymore. What the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it's a it's a different market, especially for and I say market, just everything: stocks, bonds, real estate. Um, especially for younger investors who haven't seen a bear market in anything. Right, this is their first stock bear market. Now there's some challenges in real estate. Um, cryptocurrency, which a lot of younger investors were in, was just an absolute free fall. And uh, it, it's been tough. And, um, you know, the economic lesson of the day is interest rates matter. Uh, and interest rates are probably the single, if you're going to point to one factor of what controls our economy more than anything else, it's interest rates. And so when I talk about that, um, just one thing that anyone could look at, economics kind of 101, is if you look at the 10-year government bond, 10-year treasury right now is paying, well, it's come down uh, over the last couple of days, uh, but it's, let's say it's called, it's paying about 4%. If you look about a year and a half, two years ago, that was under 1%, 80 basis points. So we've had a huge run up. And why is that so important for everything? Well, the 10-year bond, 
when you're a pension fund, you're a big investor, when we're investing for people, that's um, taught in economics and it's used in the real world. One of the, one of the few things that everyone uses is called the risk-free rate. And so what that means is mo when, you're, when you have a long-term investment, 10 years, let's call it, whether it's real estate, stocks, you know, pension funds, endowments that move a lot of money, always have at least a 10-year time horizon, what you need to do in every investment you make, so if it's stocks, bonds, cryptocurrency, you need to compare that to the risk-free rate. Well, why? If I'm going to invest for 10 years, I know the U.S. government, who's never defaulted, is going to pay me 4% on that money without any risk at all. So your brother wants to borrow money for you at 10 years at 3%, you're probably not going to do that, right? Because he's obviously a higher credit risk than the U.S. government and he's paying lower. So that's just a simplistic version of you should compare everything that you're going to do over the 10 years uh, against the, the risk-free rate. You're not going to take on uh, any uh, greater risk without at least a 4% rate of return. So any, incrementally, how much more risk you take above that, you should be compensated for that risk. So again, one of the biggest, you asked me a question earlier about what mistakes do investors do is they take on uncompensated risk a lot of times. They're taking on a tremendous amount of risk without a potential reward for it. And so what you've seen happen, we have been in a bull market for bonds now, since my career started. So in the late 90s, interest rates have been going down, right? So we're back about where, close to where we were then in the late 90s to where mortgages were about seven, seven and a half percent. But if you think back, it started well before then, you know, a lot of people's parents could tell them in the 70s, 80s, you had super high inflation. People were paying 18, 19% for their mortgage. Right, So interest rates have been coming down for a few decades now. And so what happens with that is a couple of things. Number one, when you talk about bonds as an asset class, as an investor, there's an inverse correlation. When, you, when rates go down, bond prices go up. Simple reason why, because if you buy a bond that is, every bond's a hundred bucks, if you buy one that pays you 7% today, if yields go down to three, well, instead of getting Seven bucks on that hundred, you get three. What does that mean? The guy who bought it at seven, his bond is worth more. So you have to pay a premium to get that. So as rates go down, bond prices go up. So bonds have done well every single year. And why people always tell you when you buy, put together a portfolio, put stocks with bonds. Because when you buy stocks, they're aggressive, but bonds are always conservative. They're going to hold up. Well, that's worked for 30 years. What I've been on TV telling everybody is it's not gonna work anymore because I've been saying for the last three years, I said the next stock market decline more than likely is gonna be because of interest rates. And what happens is when interest rates go up, bonds go down. And what you saw this year in 2022 is that bonds on aggregate are down about 18, 19%. People that were in the 2023 target retirement date fund at Vanguard, meaning they're getting ready to retire next year and Vanguard moves you to the more conservative stuff, that fund was down about a week ago, 21%. So how about that? You're getting ready to retire, you got a million bucks finally, now it's $790,000 and you're getting ready to retire. That doesn't feel too good, right? And so that's the problem with one size fits all, sticking to one thing and thinking that's gonna work forever. So back to that interest rates going up now, that's a problem for people that were holding bonds. Who, who's, who's setting? The Federal Reserve sets the interest rates, yep. right? Yeah, so they set short-term interest rates. So who sets 
but so, the U.S. government doesn't own the Federal Reserve. No, so 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 they're they're separate. They're supposed to be independent now. So a lot of people will say, are they persuaded sometimes by politics? Do they want to, you know, be raising rates right before election period to where because raising rates are going to slow down the economy? But essentially, they're supposed to be separate. So let's just go under the uh, idea that they're they're separate. So they set short term overnight lending rates. But what happens is that reverberates across everything. When short-term rates go up, long-term rates are impacted by that. Ultimately, it's the free market supply and demand that dictate what's going to be happening with longer-term rates. So the more supply that you have, the less demand that you have, that's going to impact in the correlation. Bonds trade, bond market's actually larger than the stock market. They trade on a minute-by-minute basis just like stocks. And they can be very volatile in periods of time like this. But ultimately, we're... For simplicity, the Federal Reserve is going to really dictate what happens with rates. And now the Federal Reserve, just to give you a little background on them, I think everyone should know this, they have a dual mandate. And that mandate says that they have to be responsible for for price stability, meaning inflation, right? They need to make sure that our dollar doesn't become you know, worth nothing, like Argentina or something like that. Uh, and they're also responsible for uh, employment. So making sure that employment rates uh, don't skyrocket, right? And so that's kind of a tough dual mandate. And right now, that's kind of what they're dealing with is this balancing act. And so kind of bring this back to the economy and why interest rates matter is they why are they raising interest rates? Well, they're raising interest rate because employment's great right now. So no matter what everyone said, we're at three point something percent unemployment. If you want a job today, you can get a job. There's no reason why you can't work today. One of the biggest challenges I see with small business owners I work with, we were talking before, you can't find good people. People don't want to work, especially when it's minimum wage or lower wage types of jobs. No one wants to do those things anymore because they can just grab an Uber. Oh, by the way, that wasn't available five or six years ago. So there's a lot more options for people to be employed uh, today. Um, and so when you look at employment, they're not worried there, so they don't have to worry about slowing things down there. Their major focus today is inflation. And we saw inflation, eight point something percent. We've been at, since you know I've been in the financial markets 20 something years, two, three percent, one percent. We don't know our age unless you're in your 50 something plus. You don't really know what inflation looks like. We haven't really dealt with high inflationary period. So everything we're doing is based off of what we heard. We heard that gold works out <laughs> during an inflationary period. <laughs> and maybe it did, but when the economy was different, maybe bonds did work good when interest rates were different, but everything is a little bit different this time. So they're really focused on breaking the back of inflation because you you don't want spending power to be, that's, that's a huge, huge problem, right? And so, well, let's talk about, you know, what is inflation? Well, it's a definition is um, too much money chasing too few goods and services, right? Okay. So everybody's got money, but there's not enough shit to buy. <laughs> and that's everything. We saw that with houses. We saw that with cars. You saw watches. Everything was going up. Why? And why did this whole situation happen? Well, let's talk about it. Um, during COVID, the global supply chain got shut down. Mm-hmm. Everywhere, right? No, that was on no one's. I don't care who you are, right? Talk about a black swan event. Nobody expected that to happen. The global supply chain was shut down. Um, oh, and we couldn't leave our house, so the whole economy was shut down, right? So nothing was happening, and then the government uh, decided, well, hey, let's give people money. Uh, let's do that through. 
uh, paycheck supplemental loans. The biggest scam out there was PPP loans uh, that people were getting. Like the vast majority of businesses are small businesses. So a lot of small businesses qualified for PPP loans. A lot of people, clients that I had that were multimillionaires that got money thrown at them that they didn't have to pay back, that were investing that money, not really doing what they needed to do. And good luck with uh, the government auditing these things and all that. That'll, that'll, that'll never happen. So there was tons of money that got put in people's pockets, yeah. right? And so let's think about that. The supply chain shut down. Uh, people can't go out of their house. Most people are still making money. A lot of people started working remotely, right? So people were making money, then they're being supplemented. Okay, so savings rates we saw during COVID went sky high. And then nobody can do anything with their money. And so, and interest rates were essentially zero at that time. Okay, so when interest rates, let's talk about interest rates at zero and the investment side of that first. Well, interest rates at zero, we talked about the risk-free rate. When I invest in something in the 10-year bonds at four or five, six or 7%, there's a hurdle there that I have to get. But when it's zero, it's like, eh, my money isn't gonna earn anything anyway if I put it in savings. It's not gonna earn anything if I put it in bonds. I might as well buy cryptocurrency. I might as well buy tech stocks. I might as well buy real estate and other things because I'm not getting any return here. But when the government starts raising that rate, that becomes competition for those assets. And not to get into a total economics lesson, but there's something called a discount cash flow model to where when you're a growth company like Amazon for the first several years, and they still, they don't pay any dividends. So you're not getting money back as an investor. You're betting on future growth. And the return that you need as interest rates go up becomes much higher. And the multiple that you're willing to pay becomes much lower. And so okay. what you really saw was people said, okay, on growth assets, now that these rates are high, we're going to contract that multiple. We're not willing to pay 25 times earnings because we can get money now. We're willing to only pay 12 times earnings. So even if companies were making the same, the multiple at which they were bought at shrunk. And that always happens in this environment. A lot of this is not new. People just never saw it. So that's why tech stocks in general in the stock market got hit hard. Those dividend stocks that I told you about, year to date, they're only down about 7-8%. So they held up pretty well. Why? Because you have the safety of that cash flow that's coming in. So all stocks in this market were not created equal. Ultra, ultra growth tech stocks are down 70, 80% this year. High quality dividend stocks, 7, 8% this year. So there's a differentiation there and that's what happened with the stock market. Um, real estate is a little bit different. Well, because a couple things. We said people got money put into their pocket. Their savings skyrocketed because they had nowhere to save money. So their personal balance sheet looked a lot better. Um, and then real estate, especially in places like Nashville, Montana, Idaho, places where there's fresh air, you can get out, you have open space, you're not in the city. Unlike places like Los Angeles and New York, those became very desirable because people didn't know. Like, I think if this would have been three, six months, like I, I thought, oh, this, this, <laughs> this COVID will be over three. And then it's like two years later, you're like, holy shit, three, six months, it would have been a blip. But behavior changed after a year and a half, two years, where people think, okay, this might be a new lifestyle. And even though a lot of people are going back into the office now, I personally don't think it'll ever be the same. There'll be some flexible type of work environment going forward. And really a lot of companies saw you could actually be more profitable if you're not sending people traveling around the world unnecessarily during COVID. You saw corporate margins actually spike for a lot of companies during that time. Um, but what you saw is people had money now, interest rates, meaning the price to uh, 
pay your mortgage was very low because you could get a house for like two point something percent, right? So now you had a lot of money, homes could go up in price because the payment is very low, even though the price is high. And so you saw these areas really you know, go up. So that's why real estate was going up during that time. Stocks were going up because companies were actually making, like especially stocks like Amazon, uh, Clorox, anything that was really <laughs> you know, benefiting from uh, COVID during that time. Uh, crypto was going up because people had a lot of money and they didn't have the 10 year wasn't paying anything. And it's like, okay, greater fool theory with crypto. right? And I, I think crypto will be around just like tech stocks in the 90s. They got decimated. 90% of them went away, but the ones that stuck around like Google and Amazon did really well. And that'll probably happen with Bitcoin and things, but it takes a long time for that, that to happen. Those things got decimated. But the problem with what created this inflation was savings rates went high, we put money into the pockets of people and the supply chain got shut down. So even now, we, like the markets rallied a little bit here in the last day or two, because there's talk that COVID, um, sorry, China might be getting rid of their zero COVID policy. And zero COVID means basically you can't do shit. You can't go out of your house. They've been very, very strict, way more strict than we were even in Los Angeles with COVID. And a large percentage, no shock, of our supply chain comes from China. And so that's been shut down. Try, you know, my wife uh, does some things in fashion and she's trying to source these hats. <laughs> you can't find hats, you can't get anything. And if they do, they're charging you two to three times. Why more? Because there's no supply and people still need these things. And so that's really what's created inflation is people had more money, the supply chain has got shut down. And so, you know, a, a few things with that. A lot of people were, were thinking that this would happen in 08, 09. You remember how much money we pumped into the, the, the government pumped into our economy during that period of time? A lot of people were telling me the dollar is going to be devalued, inflation is going through the roof during that period of time, and that never materialized. Why? Well, that money actually went into the banks, and the banks essentially used that money to write off bad loans. Remember, most banks were insolvent during that period of time. We put, had to marry banks together, we had to pad their balance sheets, and the financial system itself was, was basically bankrupt, with the exception of a couple of different um, uh, names out there. And so the government, not only did they not only did banks use that money to get back to even from the from the right write offs that they had from the housing market, but also what happened is the government at that time said we don't want this to happen again. Let's raise reserve requirements. So for every dollar that's on deposit, instead of twenty cents, we want you to have forty cents. So now not only did they have to get back to even, but they had to have a greater buffer to make sure that there was a crisis again, that they were going to be able to withstand it. So that money never got out into the real economy. It stayed with the banks. And for inflation, what you need is you need both supply and velocity, meaning, yeah, the government has to put it into the banks, but then the banks need to lend it out to people, and they didn't do that. They increased lending standards. They increased their own balance sheets during that period of time. This time was different because banks were super strong, but the government buys bypassed the banks this time with PPP and everything like that, and they put the money directly into the hands of the consumer. So the velocity was much higher. So in short, we have inflation because you couldn't buy anything. People save money because they couldn't spend the money, and the government gave people extra money during that period of time, 
and we're still two and a half years later not back into a normal functioning supply chain so anything that you want to buy is still at a deficit you still have a shortage on just about everything and that was even with housing because you weren't building houses during that period of time and then also you have a millennial generation you know the late 20s early 30s now in the US that's the largest generation in US history so you have a huge amount of demand now from people that are now getting of home buying age and there wasn't a lot of homes being built and you had low interest rates and you had extra money so we really created this perfect storm for assets to go up and that's the, the perfect storm that created inflation so now what you have to ask yourself though is this all sustainable is inflation going to stay this way is this going to continue to be this way can home prices continue to stay where they're at i would say no and the reason i say that is well a couple things and why i tell people whether or not you invest about the stock market, you need to care about it because it's a leading indicator. It's like the canary in the coal mine. It's going to tell you something's wrong before anything else does. Why? Because it's liquid. It's one of the most liquid assets. If I want to sell this building, it takes me a while. If I want to sell my stock portfolio, hold on, I'll be right back with you and I'm done, right? It's liquid, yeah. it's cash. So it's very quick. And you'll also see corporate CEOs, you'll start to see people talk about a slowdown. You'll start to see things happen way be well before. And you can go back 100 years and look at this. Well, the stock market started going down in uh, about October of 2021, right? It started going down and now the stock market's gone down. The Nasdaq's down like 40 something percent. S&P went down close to you know, 24, 25%. But real estate just started showing cracks about 90 days ago, yep. right? And so why does that happen? Well, what happens is stocks, remember I said, forget stock market, they're companies. So companies, when things slow down, what do they do? They lay people off. When people get laid off, they don't feel quite as confident about buying a home or a second home especially, right? So stocks started going down and then because stocks are going down, corporate CEOs have to do something to, to, to pad their balance, to get their balance sheet better, to get more earnings. They lay people off. People get laid off. That's when it hits the real economy. That's when, whole, you know, stock market's paper until it's not, right? Because stock market's telling you things are happening. Again, stock market is companies. And when those people, and we're hearing it, the last, you know, night, Facebook now, like all these companies, General Motors laying off, laying off, laying off, laying off. And so that means people aren't as, con not, not only are people that are losing their jobs uh, in a situation where they can't afford homes, if you hear your buddy just lost his job, you're seeing it in the news don't underestimate the behavioral com component of the economy. People tighten in their belt. And sometimes just saying there's going to be a recession causes a recession because people start thinking differently. Oh, well, they say there's going to be a recession. Maybe I shouldn't buy that car. Maybe I shouldn't take that vacation. Maybe we should stop eating out, honey, four nights a week, right? So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we're at a situation in the economy now where the stock market, I think the worst of it's been done. The stock market's gone down and it's gotten crushed already, right? So would it be a good time to invest? Now? Yeah, yeah. If you've got, again, three to five years, if you've got a three to five year time horizon, it's a great time to buy stocks. In particular, though, you want to buy the stocks that were hit the hardest, the growth names, right? You want to buy the smaller companies, right? So you can buy an index, the Russell 2000. There's a lot of different ETFs out there that you can buy that. These are the smaller companies 
that are faster growers, but they get hit the hardest in a slowdown, but they're also the first to recover when things turn back around. And so why I say, look at the things that are, you know, don't buy garbage, don't sift through the rubble, buy indexes. Whatever things get hit this hard, people make the mistake of trying to pick one or two stocks. Don't do that here because everything's so cheap. Just buy the index itself, particularly those ones that got hit hard. You can buy a technology index if you got three to five years. I recommend buying the smaller stocks because those have really underperformed. What is an index? Is that like a, a mutual fund? Yeah, so it's a, so the Russell 2000, for example, it's 2000 of the smaller companies, three to five billion versus uh, trillion dollar companies like Amazon that trade on the stock exchange. Okay. So you can buy, it's called an ETF, which is called exchange trade, is an exchange traded fund. You can go to iShares, for example, or Vanguard. They both have them. If you just put small cap ETF in there, it'll show you what it is. Very cheap. And what you're doing is you're just buying that basket of 2000 stocks. So you're getting ownership in all of those names. You don't have to worry about picking the three. Because there's times people will try to pick three stocks, the index rallies, and they pick the three dogs, and they don't wind up participating in that. So buy, buy the index because those are the things that got beat up. Always own high-quality dividend-paying stocks. Always. I always own them. I always own small-cap stocks. But in terms of being opportunistic, that's what you want to do now. Don't make the mistake like I learned from an 08 or 09 because I was so scared because I saw Lehman Brothers break and I saw like people around the corner worried if banks were going to be there. You know, I was a financial professional, but I was scared. You know, I didn't think Lehman Brothers was going to go under and then Bear Stearns. And then you're just like, holy shit. Like, the, the, clearly there's not somebody smarter in the government that's going to protect us right now. Like, that's, 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 <laughs> they, 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 at that point, you know, I was pretty young still. I was like, they're, they're smarter guys. And they're like, they got this. They got like, yeah, they don't have this. And once I saw that, I was like, wow, they really don't have this. And a lot of people changed their whole risk philosophy at that period of time. But when I started getting back in, I bought the really safe names. Everything got hurt. But what I should have bought was the names that got beaten up the most, like the economically sensitive names like Google or uh, Disney even got beaten up 70. But I was afraid to buy those. I went back and I bought the, the recession names, the Procter and Gambles and the Kimberly Carks. Because I just wanted to buy almost, you know, like buy people invest in real estate because they could touch it. I felt like, hey, people are always going to brush their teeth and wipe their ass. Hopefully I'll buy, I'll buy a Procter and Gamble. But no stocks went up, but not nearly as much as the stocks that got hit hardest. So again, most of my value, yeah, education is great, but there's no substitute for experience. Similar situation now, if you're going back in with dry powder, don't buy the dividend stocks that are only down 7 8%. Buy some of those baskets that are down 30 40%, because three to five years, that's where you'll get your best return today in the stock market. Okay. But if you want to talk about real estate market for a second, because a lot of people want to invest in real estate, I think we're at the beginning of the downfall. You're seeing the markdown now. But I think, and I don't think for a lot of reasons that this will be in 08, 09. We won't see 50, 60%. We will see on average about 10%. Uh, but I think areas like uh, Texas, Florida, Nashville, unfortunately, will probably see 15 to 20% because they, again, going back to how did they perform going into this, they did a lot better than Los Angeles and New York. And you know, <laughs> prices absolutely skyrocketed. So to see, we talked about your house, if you see 15% down, nobody likes it, but you're still well ahead of where you were a couple of few years ago. And so why, well, why is that gonna happen? Why do home prices have to come down? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, one is, I think people are, people did buy 
second homes in places like Florida and Texas. Well, if the economy is uh, going to get into a position where it's a little bit tighter, people sell their second homes first. So you'll start to see those homes get sold off. Um, also, people bought in areas that they never really knew anything about, Montana and Idaho, beautiful areas. They're like, hey, it's COVID. I just want to be fresh air where I don't have to wear a mask. So they bought out there, but now they're like, uh, I don't know if I can support myself here now that the PPP money's gone. So they have to <laughs> they have to move back to the to, so that's a good thing about Nashville is they've got real industry and healthcare here and they provide jobs. But some of these places, unless you're already wealthy, you can't stay there. So it's gonna hit those areas. But the primary driver, remember I said the most important thing to any asset is bonds. Interest rates are so high right now, your mortgage is seven, seven and a quarter percent. So what does that mean in general? The same million dollar house where let's say your payment was roughly $6,000 for, right? At a million dollars, well now at 7%, that payment's 9,000. So here's the challenge. Where we got to a year ago in housing affordability was stretched. You know, so usually, how do you look at that, Rob? Well, I look at average household income. So if you look at average household income, and let's just say it's $100,000 average household income, you're usually at about three and a half times that for medium home price, so 350,000. That's always been a good indicator. Just look at what is average household income across the nation, and then what is median home price? You can Google that at any time, those two data points. And whenever you see that data point more than three, three, three times, that means it's a little bit frothy, right? And that makes sense because if the average household income can't support the average mortgage payment, it's not sustainable. Oh, good. And, and so, that, and that's kind of what happened. And at the end of the day, yeah, the rich will always be rich. But a guy of Pimco told me a long time ago, Paul McCauley said, "You can't starve the plankton." Because if you start the plankton in the ocean, the big whales die, right? They're eating those little tiny plankton. So if you don't let the little tiny plankton survive, the big whales can't survive. And so the vast majority of homes are not built by, uh, bought by uh, billionaires. They're built by the average working person. And so when you take those prices to unaffordable levels, they're not sustainable. So we were there when we were at 2.5% mortgage rates. Not extreme. But we were to a point where I didn't really see any future growth going on. But then we had this COVID pop, a lot of money, interest rates came crashing down. But now that interest rates have normalized to buy that same house, you need a 50% higher payment. It's not sustainable. So what happens in the market like this? One or two things have to happen. Interest rates need to crash back down to where we were. So we're back down to that same payment. Or you have to see housing prices adjust to where we get that to a point to where Maybe it was 6,000 before, it's now 9,000. It doesn't have to go back to six, but if rates are gonna stay six, six and a quarter, maybe that million dollar house, it doesn't need to go to 600 or 700, but maybe it needs to go to eight, 825, because that's back to where that payment's maybe 63 or 6,400 bucks. Okay. Because Americans don't pay cash for houses, right? They buy the payment. They buy the payment, and so now you need to get that payment back to where it's affordable, and I don't think interest rates are gonna come back down quick enough. The, the, the Fed's saying they probably won't cut rates till sometime late next year. So that's why I believe personally, the real estate market's gonna come down, but because supply is still short, we still don't have a huge amount of supply unlike we had in 0809. And because demand is higher now, that's gonna buffer that a little bit. And that's why I don't think it's gonna be a crash but if you're looking to buy, I think next year is probably going to be the time to buy real estate. But real estate now, again, lagging indicator, that will bottom last. 
right? Okay. Stocks bottom first, real estate stocks go down first, bottom first, real estate uh, goes down last, bottoms last. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Back to inflation. Yeah. Is I know it's because you said a lot of money's been pumped into yeah. the economy. What about printing money? A lot a lot of people are worried that the dollar's going to collapse. Yeah. Everybody that talks yeah. about it. Yeah. I don't trust anything that comes out of their <laughs> mouth when it comes to finances. Yeah. But it, it gets my attention. A lot, and a we lot did of print people a shit talk of about it. It gets a lot of clicks. Um, I used to be super scared about it when I first got into the industry. This is this has been going on. I've been in the industry since 1998. And it's been the same story in terms of the dollar printing money and all these things. And and infl- they couldn't even get to 3%. They, could, they were trying to create inflation and couldn't do it, printing record amounts of money. And so there, there's a few things. Um, number one, in terms of inflation, just the short outlook on this, I think things come down. We've already hit peak inflation, in my view. If you look at oil prices, they're coming down. Shipping prices are coming down. And we just had a print um, recently where it, uh, CPI, consumer price index, came down greater than what people were thinking. I think we peaked, and I said this about three or four months ago. Doesn't mean we're going to go back to two or three, but I don't think we're going to go any higher than eight and a half, nine percent Why? Because everything that I said supply demand, supply chain, money being put into consumers' economy, uh, pockets, pe- people having more liquid cash, that needs to be sustainable for a longer period of time to keep inflation high. I don't see that happening. The supply chain is opening back up, so they're going to start to make more of everything. We started, at least hopefully, uh, stopped p- putting more pe- money uh, from the government into people's pockets. And in absent of that, I don't see any new industry that's creating super high paying jobs where people are gonna be able to sustain that level of spending on their own. As a matter of fact, technology is probably the biggest disruptor of that. The problem with technology, it actually reduces jobs. I mean, think about your business that you run today, right? You're able to have employees remote, you're able to use technology for things that you used to would have had people. So technology actually makes businesses more profitable and efficient, but it actually takes less people to be able to do that. So, I, and I think that's we're going to continue to grow in that direction. So, I think longer term we get back to a more normalized inflation number. So, in terms of inflation, that's why I don't think it's going to stay there forever. I think in two, three years we'll be back to kind of where we were that three percent type of number. That's my view. Um, now, to your question though, in terms of okay, what about printing money and what we're doing there? Well, it's all relative, right? And that's the thing, because we are a global economy right now. um, At the end of the day, the dollar is still the world's reserve currency. And I think what happened was with Bitcoin, uh, and there was, because of this whole narrative of printing money, government's gone wild, which I don't don't disagree with. I mean, that's happening. Um, Bitcoin sounded kind of cool, right? It's like this unscrewable ledger, there's accountability, there's transparency with what's going on, there's a finite amount. It was almost like the gold standard, right? It's like, okay, for every dollar that you print, you have to have some certain amount of ounce of gold backed up to be able to do that. You can't print more dollars than you have in gold. Well, the government a long time ago got away from the gold standard, why? So just like every other, uh, central bank, they can manipulate their currency. They could do whatever they want. When you have accountability to your currency, you can't do that, right? And so we started to print money. And so a lot of people thought, well, because you're printing money, that's going to create a situation where we have superinflation. The problem is everybody around the world, Europe, parts of Asia, they all started doing the same thing. And what we've seen during every crisis that we've lived through is when the shit hits the fan, 
The thing that you wanna be in more than anything else is the US dollar. I'm not saying that can't change. And I think conceptually, everything that everyone talks about, I completely agree with. As a matter of fact, one of my first million dollar plus clients came in to me about 20 years ago. He owned copper stocks. <laughs> he owned gold, the gold, gold ETF. He owned uh, water companies. And, he, and I basically said, I said, look, let, let me tell you what your belief is about the US economy. We're printing too much money. The dollar's going to zero. He's like, how do you know? I said, because your portfolio reflects your opinion. And I said, here's the problem. You might be 100% right. And it's a super articulate case. Like, that's why people believe, yeah, we are. Like, I don't disagree with any of it. Well, any of it. But what I said is the problem is with opinions is what is the actionable strategy on that? Your actionable strategy today is invest in gold and all these things, right? And that might be the right strategy, but that's based off of one outcome. And if that outcome doesn't play out, meaning runaway inflation, sinking dollar, you're going to go broke. Thankfully, I was able to talk him into diversifying because 20 years later, he'd probably have the same amount of money versus a significant multiple over that because that hasn't played out. The US dollar hasn't crashed. We haven't had runaway inflation. And so that's the challenge that you have to be careful, even when it is a very well-educated opinion you know, I, I've never had the opinions, uh, the, the, the benefit of having an opinion without having to tie money to it. So whenever I make an opinion or I make a statement, I actually have to make a move with real money. I've managed almost a billion dollars that I have to put beyond that of people's real earned money, right? Yeah. So I could say the market's going to crash and we, let's sit in cash and earn zero. What if it skyrockets? You know, I remember when um, clients, when Obama got elected, oh, we got to get out. Obama's elected. Uh, Trump got elected. Oh, we got to get out. It's Trump. None of that shit worked out. So if you would have just sat in cash and on the sideline, you would have missed out on, you know, 100% rate of return. And so, you know, the problem is, Sean, like, I agree with all those things, but as of right now, it's not playing out. Uh, the U.S. dollar is still the reserve currency. We even saw that with gold. It didn't, it didn't do anything. The dollar has skyrocketed, right? Um, that's, that hurts the economy also, right? Because we do rely on a certain percentage of our economy for exports. And so if we're exporting anything, well, that's going to become more expensive. So people aren't going to be able to buy that quite as much, right? So that's going to become a challenge. People aren't going to come in and go to Disneyland if the price of Disneyland is 80% higher. And so we are printing too much money. Governments have gone wild. There's no accountability. I agree with all that, but I'm going to wait for the market to tell me that they don't buy it anymore. Okay. I don't know when that's going to be. Are you Are you worried at all that of course something else is going to become the world's reserve currency, like Saudi Arabia's? Are you Are you going to put your money in into yen? the yen or like I mean, or I, I I don't I don't think so. I I think quite honestly the best bet for that to happen is something like Bitcoin, where all these countries adopt a standard like, I don't think it's gonna be China. I don't th you think people are gonna trust Saudi Arabia or China or Europe more than, I, I don't personally believe it. That's what I, I like conceptually Bitcoin. And I don't, I don't think, just because it's crashed, dude, Amazon, I've owned Amazon forever. Amazon from 1990 to 2000 went down 90%, nine zero. So you had a, if you had $100,000, it was worth 10 at one point. But then 100000 became worth millions and millions of dollars if you held it for another 10 to 15 years. Just because we're having a correction in cryptocurrency does not... Now, there's Doge, there's all this crap that was just... Yeah. You know, that I don't know if you remember, you're a little younger than I am, but 
I remember in the in the 90s, there was Google, but there was also Ask Jeeves. There was Lycos. There was these other search engines where you didn't know, like they're all the same to you, but you know they had just as much of a chance. And then obviously we saw what happened. Those other ones went bankrupt. It's the same thing with crypto. But when you think about blockchain and what that's going to do for our economy, and you think about crypto being able to uh, create a decentralized financial system because there's a lot of unbanked people around the world. And if we truly are a global economy, which we were, we're becoming, and we're going to be even more as time goes on, like it or not, you really need things like blockchain and cryptocurrency. And so I believe, um, I don't know if it's Bitcoin. I, I don't know what it's going to be. And that's why you're probably better off buying a basket of whether it's Ethereum and Bitcoin and all those things. But I don't, I wouldn't write it off yet. I think I think it's I'd, I'd put my money more on something like a cryptocurrency than I would on another um, uh, uh, country's currency being the replacement for the U.S. dollar. Okay, well that's good. That's good to know. Because yeah. I've been. <laughs> Does, doesn't it feel that. good when you're holding Bitcoin though, and it's down to yeah. 16, 17,000. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm holding some of that, and yeah. I haven't. Uh, what a disaster! <laughs> I haven't sold it. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if you haven't done it now, it's it's not the time to do it. You know, okay. That's the other thing. People make that mistake or they, they buy it high, they love it. And I talked about the emotional biases. You know, people love buying things when other people are. It just feels better, even though that's probably the worst time to do it because prices are usually at an all time high. But then when they get down to these levels, everybody wants to head for the X because they think, oh, maybe someone knew something that I did. I, and, I, and I used to be that person too. And then I realized, like, I know all these other people and I know they don't know anything more than me. And that's the benefit I had, right? I got to meet all the people on television and behind the scenes and doing policy for the government, people that let, they don't know any more than me. So no one knows any more than you. And so the whole thing about Bitcoin, nobody knows. Conceptually, though, is the government what they're doing and printing a problem? Absolutely. Do we need something to solve for that? Absolutely. For me, blockchain cryptocurrency makes the most sense. It probably will happen. Nobody knows how long, what it's going to take. And that's when I, I said, Sean, it comes down to at the beginning, you asked me, what do you invest in? Put some there, but don't put enough where it's a singular outcome to where Bitcoin has to go to 4 million for you to be able to pay your bills. Put three, five percent in there, and if it takes off, like hey, if you put in Bitcoin three percent of your net worth, you know, at the beginning, you'd still have a lot of money even after it went down, right? So you can put a small amount into those things, but if it doesn't work out, you still keep the lights on, you still put food on the table, right? Yeah. So you just got to make sure you don't. And that's the problem most people make is they go all in on these ideas, or like that client I talked to you about, he lets his opinion of what's going to happen dictate his investment. And I learned a long time ago that even when it seems crazy, markets can remain irrational a lot longer than you can remain solvent. <laughs> it's the truth. So you don't, you don't, it doesn't sound like you think this recession is going to turn into the Great Depression part two. I, I just don't see why or how. I mean, people are still employed. They still have jobs. I mean, I, if someone showed me data to say why that was going to happen, I, I would say, Okay, maybe, but I just don't see data. I mean, people are still getting jobs. The unemployment number has actually been going down. And like I said, the economy is different, you know, because 10 years ago, um, there wasn't Uber, there wasn't DoorDash, there wasn't this gig economy where there's a lot of people in the shadows that are doing little things or supplementing their, their income by driving for Uber. We've heard now even more so where you've got people that work from home, but they're taking on second jobs, the newer thing that they're coming on. So I, I think it's just a little bit different um, today. I think there's just a lot more opportunity for people to make money than there was before. And I don't see the economy crashing. That being said, 
yeah, there could the recessions are a normal part of taking excess. So I think, yeah, a recession. I don't think it'll be 08 or 09, though. You don't think it'll be I that bad? I don't think it'll be 08. No, because if you just look at all the numbers, if you look at the 08 or 09 was primarily because our financial institution was bankrupt. That's a problem. Like the only thing we've seen, and I haven't seen it um, prior to 08 or 09 that was anywhere close was the Great Depression. You know, so this was, and that was the thing why, you know, in 09, the stock market bottomed. Ironically, 666 was the number. Within 90 days from there, it was up like 50%. And so why did it come back so quick if it was really such a problem? It wasn't a valuation problem or an economic problem. It was a liquidity crisis. That's what caused assets to get flushed. It was a liquidity and a leverage problem. So especially leverage, way over leveraged in real estate. Like I told you, someone had $20 million in equity wiped out because he was over leveraged. Long-term capital management, if you Google them, in 1998, there were, a, there were a hedge fund that traded currencies. Nobel Prize laureates, super smart people, huge institutions were invested in them, tons and tons of money. They were betting on currencies. The strategy went really bad with Russia when they devalued their currency. They were levered in this, and they were basically forced to wipe out the fund. Banks had to step in. It was a huge, it became a huge uh, national um, economic issue. Well, the truth is, if they were able to keep that strategy on a little bit longer without leverage, they would have made a ton of money. The problem is they were flushed out of it. Same thing with my client who sold and took a $20 million loss. If you could have waited five more years, he would have made money on it, but he was flushed out of it. Stocks were sold. All those things were still in 08 or 09 because when you need to raise cash to put up money for real estate or whatever it is, you don't sell what you want to sell necessarily. You sell what you can sell. And stocks are the easiest thing. So it was a huge liquidity problem, and the banks were financially bankrupt. We saw that happen. The government had to come in and save them. And now, though, the financial system is the strongest I've seen it since I've been in the market since 1998. Their balance sheets are way better. Their lending standards are way tighter than they were before. So I don't see a, a financial system that's corrupt. I don't see super huge excess. I see still a supply-demand issue. There's still not enough homes being built out there for the amount of people that want to buy them. People are still working. So I'm just asking, like, what's going to create this huge depression? Yeah. I just don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against it. You know, my opinion, I'll change my mind as soon as I see more data. I just don't see the data that supports that. That being said, for your listeners, the bearish case, meaning the negative case is always, always the most articulate because the idea when you can quantify in psychology, the emotion of fear is three times greater than greed. Okay. So, so that's why they say stocks take the stairs up, but the elevator down. Okay. Like, you know, so they go up over time, but when they come down, boy, or cryptocurrency, it comes down fast and hard because when people get scared, they get really, really scared. And so, and I never do this. If I, even in my, in, in the industry, if I would have always just played on people's fear, I probably would have been worth three X of what I was today. And you see people do that all the time. The market's going to crash. Always. doesn't matter if we're in a bull market. It's just a consistent story. And those are the guys that you see them in and out of the media because they're the bear guys all the time. And when there's a bear market, they show up and then they're gone for four or five years. Then they, bring, they, they dust them off and they bring them back. Because playing on people's, like I could make so much money if I tell you how corrupt the, the government is, how much money we're, 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 we're printing, uh, how our political system's bankrupt, how the stock market is rigged. How, all of this shit, I would bring so much money in to hear that. I, I don't know how to make, and, and some of it's true. But at the end of the day, I don't know how to make money off of that because none of that stuff's crashing. So if I short it 
or if we just sit in cash because uh, we're, we're so worried and I can't make money off of it other than charging you a subscription to feed to hear how bad the world is. <laughs> and, and I just refuse to do that. So be careful of the bear case. It always sounds really articulate and smart. Because like I said, I could make a really smart case where I could scare the shit out of everybody today also. But it's, it's just not there. It's not an actionable strategy. Maybe someday it will be, but right now that's not the plan. Well, that's refreshing because that's all I hear is... Yeah. is we're doomed. Yep. Yep. So, I, and I've been hearing that for twenty something years. You know, it's, and I've still made money in stocks. I've still made money in real estate. I've still made money in oil. I've still made money in all these things, despite how they said you can never make money in them again. Do you do you think that it, it seems like this could be the fear machine too? But yep. it seems like Europe's collapsing. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? It is, um, because they, I mean, you talk about political issues over there and you talk about socialism, some of the things that are driving that economy down the toilet, it is, but it's a very small part of the U.S. economy, right? We're still, we're still very, very, first of all, we're a very domestic economy. About 80% of our GDP is uh, goods and services here in the U.S. China's a bigger deal. China's a much bigger deal in their economy for us than Europe is. Well, they're collapsing too, correct? Well, they've, they've been collapsing for a while, but now, and that's why, that's another reason outside of interest rates, why the stock market's been going down because China, they haven't been, and, and the high end of real estate's actually been getting hurt for about a year right now because Chinese have been coming in and buying the high end of real estate. They're putting money in into our stock market. They're visiting things here. They're bringing money into the U.S. And then also, by the way, a large part of our supply chain is heavy. Everyone I know that's in Garbim, any of those things, they're all sourcing from China. And so that got shut down. And the factories that were still open in China were charging two to three times the amount. And so now, and it's really because of the COVID shutdown. That's a singular issue. And so now that they're opening back up, that's actually becoming a catalyst uh, for our economy, because things are going to come down, supply chains could open back up. You're no, just now. I just I, t- I just told you a, a friend of mine sold a sixty million dollar house in Los Angeles just a week ago to, to to a billionaire from China. So those things are starting to actually open up, and and those are now a catalyst. And that's the other thing you have to be careful: is timing does matter, <laughs> right? So and the, the the thing is, you, going back to what mistakes do people make? People hear something and they act. Well. Again, stock market, a lot of asset classes are leading indicators. So by the time you hear it, it's probably already happened. So yes, true, but Chinese stocks are down 60 70%. Starbucks is down 50% because a large part of its um, income and growth strategy comes from stores in China. So when they can't develop and open stores in China, the stock got hit 50%. Oh, I don't want to buy Starbucks because China, yeah, dude, but it's down 50%. It's already priced into it. So it's like you're bringing out the water hose when the house has already been burnt down. So that's the whole thing. You want to think about what don't people know or expect to happen today. And so that's why the stock market right now today, it's like the start and go. Start like It's like, are we at a bottom? Or are we not at a bottom? Because what they're trying to do is determine when, and this is every, all, if I knew when the Fed was going to stop raising interest rates and start cutting them, I'd be a billionaire. And that's what everyone's trying to do is because you have to get ahead of that. Once they start cutting rates, it's too late. Things have already moved up. So what everyone's doing is when the Fed comes out every month and talks about it, they're parsing every word like, oh, I think they're going to slow down because they want to jump ahead of that because stocks are going to move in advance of that, just like they moved down in advance of them, of them uh, raising interest rates. 
Okay. So what everyone's trying to do is jockey for position. So to make money in everything, you gotta like wait, what, when they asked Wayne Gretzky, why was he so great? He said, I skate to where the puck is going, not where it's been. It's the same thing in investing. You gotta figure where's the puck going. So what everyone's trying to do now is they're saying, okay, Starbucks, all these things, they've been crushed 60, 70%, right? And when a stock goes down 50%, you know, simple rule of numbers. If you put $1,000 into a stock and it goes down 50%, it doesn't take 50% to get back to even. It takes 100%. Because if 100 cut to 50, you now need to get another 50 bucks to get back to 100. So now you need 100% rate of return. So what you're doing now looking is saying, well, shit, if I could get star, if I can get into Starbucks now and in five years, it just gets back to where it was two years ago for the people who paid that price, I actually get 100% rate of return on my money. Hmm. So now what you're doing is trying to find these, like Starbucks isn't going on, but you're trying to, timing matters. You don't want to get in and catch a falling knife. So what everyone's trying to determine, myself included now, is how much do we put in? So that's why I've been telling people when I'm on you know, Fox, like, okay, should people buy? I said, look, we're getting close. <laughs> Can we go down another 10 to 15 cent percent? Yes. Don't go all in. But start putting some money in here, right? It's called dollar cost averaging. If you're going to invest a thousand bucks, maybe put two hundred now. Okay. Wait and kind of see what happens. But don't wait until now. The Fed says we're cutting interest rates because then Starbucks isn't going to be fifty percent lower. It's going to be fifty percent higher than it is now. Okay. You see, so that's be careful of finding this narrative. Oh, Europe's bad. China's bad. Let, let's short Europe. Or people do that. Like they get this information and it's like, dude, it's already priced in. You know, so you're you're trying to get that's the tough part, right? Is you're trying to make investments based off of things that may or may not happen. And that's why you want to take a broad-based approach, right? So if you think China's gonna recover, cool, maybe put five percent into China. <laughs> if you think tech's like again, don't like going back to my client who was all in on the dollar crashing and super high inflation may happen and he'll be a billionaire, but if it doesn't, he's broke. Right, so don't, like, even though you have all the data on your side, again, dude, I've seen, there's, they are printing money, they're all doing all these things, but it hasn't occurred, and the problem is we're not pension funds or endowments. We're not investing for a 1,000 years. We live to 100 at most. <laughs> so, so I maybe got another 50 years, probably not that long, 30 years, so I need shit to happen now. Yeah. Like, if it happens in 30 or 40 years, yeah, that's great, maybe my heirs will uh, take advantage of it, but I have to invest for today. Most people that are listening to this show have to invest for today. So be careful of letting your opinion 100% guide your investment decisions. Okay. When do you think the markets are very volatile right yeah. now, it seems like? When do you think these are going to calm down? I think it's going to calm down once we get more certainty around interest rates. And so what? What? And how do you look at that? Well, you look at uh, like a print that just came out on CPI, why the stock markets just recently rally is because Again, everything's based off of expectations. So the consumer price index, which gives us our measure of inflation, whether 3%, 8%, comes out monthly. But there's economists that are predicting what that number is going to look like. So again, it's all expectations. So if the prediction is 8% and it comes in at 7.5, markets rally. It's like, wow, it's actually better than we expected. So inflation's coming down. And what does that mean? Well, if inflation's coming down, the Fed could start stop raising rates and cut rates. And we said, remember, rates are the most important thing for the economy and investing because when that 10-year, well, what happens if the 10-year bond goes to 8%? We're in a lot of trouble. I'm not investing in stocks if I could put my money in 10-year bond and get 8%. So when those things come down, that's great. And so what did we say about the Fed? 
They don't care about employment right now because it's fine. They care about inflation. So what I'm watching right now is inflation because inflation is going to tell me what the Fed says because the Fed's watching inflation. So I'll watch inflation numbers. So again, we're trying to jockey for position. I'm watching inflation numbers because if those are cool, I'm not going to wait three weeks for the Fed to tell me they're, they're cool. But that's another mistake people make. I'll wait for what the Fed says. Yeah, but a lot of people made that decision based off of what that, the data was that the Fed's looking at. Okay. You see, so so what I'm so as soon as we have a little bit more confirmation, and we're seeing it. So there's something called the VIX index, V-I-X. You can Google it. It's on Fox uh, Business, on CNBC, Yahoo Finance. It says the VIX index. That normal number is around 17. That's a normal measurement. We've been at about 45.50, super high. Sometimes we'll get eight or nine when there's no volatility. We've come, gone from about 40-something. We're down to about 25 now. So volatility's been coming out of the market. If you notice, like we hit a low a few months ago. We haven't penetrated that low. We've just been bouncing around. And that's the thing about the market. It's kind of cool when you understand that. Well, the market is just basically articulating its opinion of what we're talking about. We probably hit peak inflation. <laughs> we probably still have a little further to go on real estate. So if you look at real estate stocks, they're actually starting to do worse now. Uh, maybe tech stocks at bottom, but we're not quite sure. We're looking week to week on data. So once we know that the Fed, and that's why we're listening to the Fed every month, once they come out and say, yeah, we're done easing interest rates, things are going to be off to the races, volatility is going to come out of the market. We're getting close to that. If I had to bet, we'll probably bottom. I think we've already bottomed. Uh, but I think we'll stop having this huge volatility sometime in around the first quarter of next year, especially as we start to hear that the Fed might start cutting rates in the second half of next year. Also, what I would tell you is we just had a midterm election. If you look six months out of a midterm election since the 1950s, 100% of the time, the market's been positive. Does it mean it's going to happen this time? No, but 100% of the time it's been positive. When you look at a year where the market's down 20% or more, the rate of return is huge one year out. So now we're in a situation where midterm, we still don't know technically what's going on with everything, but um, we have a year where we might finish down 18 to 20% on the S&P 500. We've got supply chain opening back up. Fed should be getting uh, done with what's going on. And so now people are starting to think the opposite. Okay, interest rates going up, inflation, everything that would kill assets, we're gonna get to the inverse of that. And just one other thing, I said the interest rates are the most important thing. We talked about assets, but think about the consumer. We all have a lot of debt still. Some people buy floating rate mortgages where they have to refinance. Uh, we, we, well, hopefully we don't have debt, but everyone else has debt. <laughs> but credit cards, credit cards, right? Those are super high rates. But what happens when rates go up? Credit cards don't stay at 16%. They go to 24%, 25%. When people buy homes, they're not at 2%, they're at 7%. When people have student loans, those are revolving debt. So instead of $300 a month payment, it's $400 a month payment. So why does that cause a recession when rates go up? Forget about asset prices. The average person has debt payments. Their credit cards, their car payment, everything goes up. So now if they had an extra thousand bucks a month after they paid all their bills, but now their student loan rate went, their student loan payment went up, their credit card went up, they have to refinance their house now because it's due after their five-year arm, instead of a thousand bucks extra that they had to spend, now it's 200 bucks. So now the average household that, again, we said 70% of the U.S. economy is based off of the consumer spending. If they can only spend 200 bucks in the economy versus a thousand, that's going to have a hit. That's what causes recessions. So we need, to, we need to get not just asset prices, but to get more money back into the consumer's pocket because if more money goes to debt service, less that goes to buy a new car, less that goes out to eat, less that goes to buy a new shirt, new tie. Okay.
This is a lot simpler than I was thinking. It's all real simple. That's what I'm telling you. Like as soon as you start to get the correlation, it, it starts to demystify what's going on out there. Like you don't learn it overnight, but that's why I always say, if people just spend a year listening to me, I try to make it as simple as possible. It's not that difficult. And like I said, once you get a baseline level of knowledge, no one really knows more than, we're all just trying to guess at what's gonna happen. Okay. No one really knows exactly what's gonna happen. It sounds like it's a lot of just cutting through the bullshit. It's cutting through the bullshit, yeah. But um, and just under, It's all basic at the end of the day. Higher interest rates suck because it makes things more expensive. And unless you're making a lot more money when things are more expensive, you have a lot less to spend. With inflation, that I've heard the numbers, it's it's what eight nine percent right yeah, now. Yeah, it's about yeah eight point four. A lot of people are saying that it's actually what eighteen nineteen percent. Is there any truth to that, or is that is that yeah? I mean, there, there, there's bullshit? you know when you're talking about uh, X food and energy, you start you they start taking out things of different depending on what inflation report you're looking at. Yeah, and then you look at things like okay, well, there's not just inflation from Procter and Gamble that I'm paying, you know. 8% more for my uh, paper towels or my box of cereal, but that box shrunk by eight ounces, right? So so now those are the sort of things that they start thinking about because yeah, if you had a 12 ounce box of cereal that was 10 bucks, but now it's an eight box, eight ounce box of cereal that's 11 bucks, it's not just that 10% increase from 10 to 11, it's actually much greater than that because now I'm getting a lot less in terms of volume. And that's a trick a lot of people, and that's the stuff we have to spend money on. We have to buy milk, we have to buy cereal, we have to buy diapers, all those things. So they call it shrinkflation. So that's what's happened with a lot of the things that we're doing as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about gas? Is gas? Yeah, so so th so in the, in the traditional, uh, you go X food and energy, so you're taking those things out out of the out of the report. So gas for a lot of people is a, a real expense. And the thing about gas and why I so said when I'm looking at oil prices when we're skyrocketing, now we're back down below $100 a barrel. When you think about gas, gas is one of the major inputs. Fuel oil is one of the major inputs into inflation. Why? Well, because everything has to be transported either by ship, by truck, by plane. And so what's happening is if oil prices are high to transport cargo is gonna be more expensive. So everything starts getting more expensive, so it's a major input into that. And that's why you see even locally in places like California, some of the same things you buy at the store are more expensive than they are here in Tennessee. Why? Because I'm paying seven bucks a gallon for gas in California versus four bucks a gallon here. Why? Because they have certain taxes that are that are tacked on the price of gas over there. Okay. So. There's local economics and there's national economics. And that's, there's <laughs> yeah, that's something I, I didn't even yeah. didn't even put that together. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be honest with you. But let's take a quick break. Yep. Yeah, yeah. A lot of you have heard me talk about my psychedelic journey this year and all the benefits that came from doing it. One being, I haven't drank in seven months. I haven't had any caffeine in seven months. My anxiety's gone, my anger's gone. A whole list of benefits came from that. And that led me down this journey of researching benefits of mushrooms and fungi in general. And in my research, I found this company called Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and herbs. With a fraction of the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without anxiety, jitters, or the crash of coffee. What I really like about Mudwater is that they took the time to find the perfect ingredients to make a product that's gonna make you feel better every day. I genuinely believe that this is a good product.
Mudwater is Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Mudwater also donates monthly to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, as Mudwater believes the country is in a mental health epidemic, and so do I. Go to mudwater.com Sean to support the show and use code Sean for 15% off. That's mudwater.com Sean. Use code Sean for 15% off. All right, Rob, we're back from the break. Want to wrap this up, but um, I did have one, I did have a question. You've been talking about the best thing for entrepreneur, the best thing for entrepreneurs to do is invest in themselves. And if you want to get yep. wealthy, start a business. Yep. I heard you say in another podcast that people that start their own business, I, I remember you talking about one guy who he was he was worth about $120,000 and invested everything he had into his business. That's why it was worth $120,000. And then he came out worth, I don't know, 10 million or whatever, mm -hmm. some substantial amount yep. of money. Yep. What are most entrepreneurs investing in other than themselves? I, I pretty much invest just in my company. Yep, yep. Um, but I'm always looking for other ways to invest. And one thing that I have been thinking about investing in, I love real estate. I love mm -hmm. looking at it. Me and my wife love looking at real estate. Would it be advantageous for me to buy a studio versus rent? Yeah, so I, I think one thing about entrepreneurs is when when you take a look at what you're doing in terms of investing, either way, when you're an entrepreneur, you're making a big investment in yourself. <laughs> either way, because if it doesn't work out, you're screwed. So you're, you're all in on yourself. And essentially, you're taking a tremendous amount of risk with your future income because you're banking on yourself to be able to provide that not only today, but hopefully grow that income over time. And so when you think about it from that perspective, there's already a big risk investment in your portfolio, and that's in your business. So what I try to do is have most, and I don't think you should not be that way because I think, and you, you talked about it, you've really narrowed in and focused what you're doing right now where you're all in on one thing, all effort, energy, and resources, and that's a double-edged sword to where because you're all in on that, if that doesn't work out, you're kind of screwed, but because now you're putting yourself all in, you're giving yourself the greatest opportunity of exponential success, okay? But because you're doing that also, you have to think, okay, if I'm taking risk with my business, do I wanna be coupling that with risk in my portfolio on cryptocurrency and venture capital and some of the riskiest investments out there? Or do I wanna look for ways to kind of stable and buffer that? And that's the whole idea about putting an investment portfolio together is you're strategically putting together assets that are gonna buffer each other, meaning when one goes up, one is going down or, or the corollary. If everything in your portfolio goes up and down at the same time, you're not really diversified. And that's really why we diversify is to kind of even out that ride. So what I would say is start to focus on going back to where what you wanna be doing simultaneously is building an investment portfolio that one day is able to replace the income that you're achieving for your active job for various reasons. Number one, no matter what we all do, we don't all wanna do it forever, no matter how much we love it. So you wanna be able to take that off. But also like I've had people to where they get the portfolio in three or four years where maybe they're working six days a week, they still love what they're doing, but they wanna work three days a week. And now they've got enough supplemental income that's coming in where they're able to do that. So what I would really 
focus on as an entrepreneur are what are income producing assets? What are assets that are going to generate passive income that are going to allow me maybe at some point in time where if I have a bad month or two months, I might not be taking the money out today. I might be reinvesting in it. But if I needed to, I have somewhere to where I can get passive income. You know, one thing I always did for myself as an entrepreneur, if I had a payment on something like a car payment, for example, I would look at in one of my port, one of my accounts. That's a, not an IRA account, just a taxable account. I have I have dividend income that comes out, and dividends are paid every quarter. And what I normally do is reinvest that. But then when I said, okay, what I want to start doing now is I'm only going to buy a car if my dividends that come out every month are enough to pay for that car payment. So I just have those dividends come in and transfer. And I started doing that with other payments. So I wasn't yet to that point where my portfolio covered all my expenses. But I started one expense at a time. And then you get it to where your mortgage could do it. And then it's kind of cool, right? Because you're like, hey, my car is paid by this portfolio. My mortgage is now paid for this. And what that's doing simultaneously, it's taking pressure and stress off of you as a business owner to have to go out there and crush it every month. And one thing I noticed in, as being a financial advisor early on, people could smell and that you feel desperation. When you really need the money and you're out there for some reason, you know, call whatever it is, it doesn't happen. But when you get to a point, I got to a point where I, I didn't have to work with people I didn't want to. Lo and behold, I have more people that wanted to work with me than ever before. And so that's what I tell entrepreneurs. You're going to start making decisions that are the most strategic decisions for your business when you're not worrying every month about paying the bills. And so if you could start building a portfolio that allows you to be more strategic and, and make decisions in your business that are longer term growth oriented versus how do I make a dollar today because I have to pay my bills. And we all start there when you're an entrepreneur. That's what I would recommend. So what do you do? Dividend paying stocks. Look, bonds. There's some good bonds out there right now. Uh, I bought some corporate bonds that are paying me 7 8% interest a year. Um, you can buy cash flowing real estate. The challenge, and I love real estate. The challenge now, though, the, the interest that comes off of a, a, a piece of property is called a cap rate. So your three cap, four cap. The problem is now a lot of cap rates because interest rate got, got so high from multifamily units I'm seeing are three and a half, four percent. So remember going back to that 10 year bond, it's like, why am I going to take that risk at 3% if I could just clip the coupons on a government bond for four? So I'd rather see real estate I love as part of the portfolio. I love self-storage because uh, that's easy. Someone moves out, you just hose it out. You're not rebuilding and put someone else in. I love apartment complexes. Um, I love industrial warehouse space. I love lower maintenance. Really, I love self-storage and industrial warehouse because you're not worrying about tenants or anything like that destroying anything, and they cash flow a lot. So I would be more focused if I'm an entrepreneur investor on cash flowing versus growth. Okay. The corollary is if you're a doctor, right? Well, you got to. I worked with a lot of physicians earlier in my career. They're not. They're not. You know, unless they screw something up, they're going to have a job forever. They're making a half a million bucks plus a year. They're maxing out their 401k. For them, I, but there's no surprise at the end of the day. They're not going to build a business that's worth $100 million. They're not going to generate cash flow from their business if everything takes off of $3, 4000000 million a year. They never have that opportunity. So what I tell them is, look, max out your 401k, do what you're doing, like have that, that, that stuff. You know, you're doing all that. You're always going to be able to pay your bills. You're not going to have to touch your portfolio until you're done practicing. 
But be in some of those speculative investments. Buy some raw land out where I think they might start building in five, 10 years. Buy some of those smaller, more speculative companies that they might not work out, but they could 10x, 100x your money over time. So again, remember back when you asked me about what do I invest in, it's a very important question to understand what are you trying to accomplish. And so the doctor might be in your investment portfolio, be super speculative and aggressive because that's your chance to like change your life, right? With their investments, your business isn't going to do that. But for you, what I would say is, hey, you've got a lot, or any entrepreneur, if you do it right, you've got a lot of upward momentum to where your income can significantly increase. You can be build value in the business that you might not totally sell like I did to a company, but you might have junior partners that buy from me. It might be other people. There's, there's many ways to exit. So what I would say for you is, Get that portfolio becoming your, your stability, your source of uh, income. Take that because being an entrepreneur is very, very uh, stressful when you're when you're thinking like, hey, the only way this is going to work out if I go and get new subs or I go get a new client or I go do, do one of those things. When you can't do that and you've got three or four months of not doing that, you start to second guess yourself. And especially when money's not coming in. But when you've got money flowing in and you can rely on that, again, you're not panicked as much. That And what does that all do? You have better relationships. You're nicer to your kids. <laughs> you become a better person. Money's money's a serious issue. So I, I would invest in more of those passive income types of things. This is probably a very elementary question, but is can I buy stocks, crypto through my business, or do I need to transfer money out you, of my business you, into my you, personal account you, to do that? You, you can, but there's really no personal advantage to do that. You're taxed differently. So you're much, the, only, the only time you should be buying stocks through your business is if you create a 401k plan or a set plan, a retirement plan that's specifically for the business. Because then depending on what that plan is, it's going to allow you to take some of the money from your business, put that into that account, and it's pre-tax, so you won't be taxed on that money. Okay. So let's just say if you do a, a defined benefit plan, depending on your income, it might allow you to put away, say you make 200000 a year, it might allow you to put 40000 away. It goes into this investment account. You can invest in whatever you want, crypto, stocks, real estate investment trusts. On that $40,000, you wouldn't pay income tax, though. You'd only pay on the other. So there's a benefit. But if it's money outside of that, you have greater benefits in terms of cost basis and things you can do as vesting as an individual. So only invest in your business if you have a business retirement plan. There's an easy way you could do solo 401k, you could do SEP, you could do a defined benefit plan. There's things that you can do. Just Google business retirement plans, call Schwab, call TD Ameritrade. You could set that up, even put it in, in an index fund, something really simple. Um, do that. But if you're going to invest outside of that, just open up an account in the name of your trust if you have it, or in your own name, or in a, a joint name with your wife if you're married, or husband if you're married. Okay. What do you think about paying off debt, like mortgages? Yeah. So again, uh, you know, financial planning is a little bit of art and a little bit of science, and um, it's getting to know the person. And so there's certain people who um, they can handle stress really, really well, and um, you know, they don't necessarily mind um, having some debt if it makes economic sense. Because here, you know, here's the thing: when I, when I look in this. When you look at someone's mortgage, for example, you know a lot of people will come in, let's say they've got a million dollar home, they've got a $300,000 mortgage, and they're saying, hey, should I just pay this off, Rob? And I'll look at it and I'll say, well, let, let's do a simple analysis. You're paying 3% interest rate right now. What have your, the rest of your investment portfolio done over the last five years, let's say? And they'll say, well, 
I said, okay. Then we got some tax advantage, so let's take that three to 4%. You still have 500 basis points or 5% difference between what you're paying there and what you can earn. So on $300,000, that's about, let's call it $15,000 a year or more. So the right financial decision is don't pay off that mortgage, invest it because you're gonna make $15,000 a year. But then there's the other thing of like I was telling you as an entrepreneur, well, if I pay off that mortgage, there's a lot less stress on cash flow that I have to pay out. And it's where I live. I could put my head down at night. I know nobody's going to take it away from me. So how do you quantify that? And so what I would say is like, it's really understanding the person. So um, I've had a lot of people, I talk about an athlete that moved out to, maybe it was off camera, we we're talking about an athlete client of mine who moved out to Texas. And uh, he was just one, you know, he had a ton of money and he was just one of those people where I just knew he felt better if he had no debt. And so for him, it would have made more economic sense to put debt on it, but he liked the fact that he was in the NFL, he retired, he was able to pay off everything that he had, zero debt, and he was able to take the cash flow from his portfolio and that cash flow generated about 300% what he needed to pay all the taxes and bills on that. So for him, that was his definition of financial success, right? He didn't want to have to worry about interest rates or anything like that. So again, it goes back to that plan and it's really dialing in who am I, what's important to me, where am I at today, putting a clear, concise um, roadmap of where you're trying to go and just doing everything consistent with that. So if you know you want to retire at 60 and you don't want to have a mortgage, well, then maybe doubling up on your mortgage payment makes a lot of sense, right? Does make so sense. There's no, there, everyone wants like, buy this, do it this way, do it that way. Like I said, uh, buy stocks and bonds because that always helps you until it doesn't. There's, there's just no one way. I wish there was because it'd be a lot easier for me. But it's just like, that's why I always talk to people about just understand a little bit about bonds, understand a little bit about stocks, a little bit about real estate, and more importantly, understand about yourself and where you're trying to go because no one else could do that for you. You could always call Rob or anyone else, and if you need, hey, I'm doing this, and if you know where you're trying to go, I can give you specific advice based off of that. So that's what I would encourage everyone out there. And you can find good certified financial planners that are fee only. They'll charge you a little bit of money to just put the plan together. They don't have to invest your money or anything, pay them a thousand bucks or whatever it is. Put the plan together so you know where you're trying to go. And then start educating yourself on those things, one thing at a time. Okay. <clears throat> For the average American, let's yeah. say they have $10,000 or less to yeah. invest, yeah. where would you tell them to put their money? So if they have $10,000 to invest, and let's just assume this is long-term money that they, that they don't need away and they can put that away, I mean, I think the best thing for most people, quite honestly, is just to buy an index fund. So you could buy the U.S. S&P 500 index fund. You buy the 500 biggest companies out there. And if you look at that over the last 20 years, it does about 9 to 9.5% a year. There's no management fees on that. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to do anything. You just put it away, and a 9% rate of return is a pretty good rate of return if you're able to continue to feed that over a period of time. So a lot of people will tell you to buy this thing or buy that thing. They're trying to make a commission or do that. Just buy an index fund super low cost, it's free. Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Robinhood, whatever it is you wanna go, buy, it's SPY is the symbol, you can buy the ETF, it's like one hundredth of a percent to own it, and just put it away for 20 years, 15 years, you'll be fine. Perfect. Well, Rob, it sounds like this is great news. I was really expecting you to say that 
we're going into the Great Depression. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, sorry, I couldn't deliver worse news. <laughs> so, so this is a refreshing interview. Okay. And um, but what do you what do you have coming up? Anything? Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm uh, transitioning out of my wealth management firm at the end of the year. I've got an academy where I've been helping educate people on stuff like this. How do you create your own plan? How do you put that in place? Because like at the end of the day, I think there's some great financial advisors and you could still work with them, but no one's going to care more about your money than you do. And so educating yourself at least to a position where no one you could take can take advantage of you, I think is a super important thing to do because it, it is your livelihood. It is your life savings that you're talking about investing. So um, that's the academy that we're working on. Um, we're launching a, a new firm, Real Talk Capital, to give people access to a certified financial planner anywhere from 500 bucks a year uh, to get a plan to put those things in place to kind of work alongside them versus handing it over to someone. We're launching that in January and I'm uh, just signed a book deal with Wiley. I'm going to be writing a book, Closing the Wealth Gap, teaching people some of these things of how they can do it. That should be out. Uh, I was hoping the way how quick I write, I was going to get it done by February. They told me it won't be done until next fall. So I guess next <laughs> fall, uh, people don't move fast these days anymore. So next fall, that'll probably be out. But um, yeah, people could always go to my website, robluna.com. We post there what's going on. And uh, um, yeah, email me, whatever it is. Always willing to you know give people advice and Perfect. Hopefully get get them in a position where they're controlling their own financial. I think I'm going to join your Wealth Academy. No. So, but uh, everything will be linked below okay. in the description, your website, all your social media, your phone number. I'm cool. just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> just put my address if you're going to yeah, do I'll put that. your address out there. <laughs> but hey, man, I just, I want to say I really appreciate you coming out here. I learned a ton. I know the audience learned a ton, and and um, I just I hope to see you again. It was great, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity, Sean. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Thanks, man. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.